0: Uh, life is a spiritual battle between good and evil. You start to see what he's talking about, and Passio is really saying the very same thing. And so, well, on episode one, it struck me the great that that the power process that the world is starving for is the great work, is the spiritual challenge that we have in front of us to help the population rediscover their sovereign self, their sovereign rights as, as, uh, as sovereign beings. Thanks for joining us. Got a big uh, episode for you here today. If you want to follow along in the show notes, head over to synthesismeaning.me podcast section podcast 2. We get into the meat of the Unabomber story, so I hope you enjoy it, and we'll catch you on the other side. get some feedback to me on both episode 0 and episode 1. So I will respond to that in our uh, feedback section. Carry on here. So the, um, one of the comments was that it sounds an awful lot like I'm trying to make an absolute claim. When I say things like I can see all the darkness, that's quite a black and white extreme statement and I have to be honest that my I have no claim to any absolute claims. All I'm claiming is relative to my own my own path. So when I say things like I can see all the darkness, there's a half a sentence left out there, which is relative to what I could see five years ago. <laughs> so I will catch myself and be careful about that. I'm not having a messianic episode, uh, a la David Koresh. I um, I'm just very very pleased with my own progress and my own journey and. Uh, And I'm just comparing my experience to my my own path. So I hope I clear that up. I caught myself on a few points, a few important points. So I think I'll just introduce the idea here. And then when we get into the macro section, I'll get into some of the more details. But, well, I guess I can say that to give a little background on the inspiration of the podcast is twofold. One is the value of the concept of shadow work and the experience I mentioned on episode one of having group calls where you're comparing the trends and observations you're having in your own life and often frustrations, and when you step outside of that and and talk to others and find out that that it's you're not alone, others are on the same journey, it really helps create some distance between the daily happenstance of your life and. Uh, and kind of observe and get into observer or witness mode, uh, which is a much more constructive place to be. So I wanted to share that. Um, I wanted to share it, and I wanted to reproduce it. So uh, that's what I'm. That's what the uh, intent of the micro conversation is. It's really sharing trends and observations and insights, and then hoping that we can create a feedback loop around that and hope hopefully that what I'm seeing others are seeing and we can kind of I'll sometimes have a question sometimes have a comment or a theory and and hopefully we can help each other rise above it all and continue to progress on our paths so that was the idea on the first half the second half was really I don't know I think it was Michael Sarion that that articulated it extremely well and i don't have that quotation but it's something along the lines of studying history is studying the psyche i mean you're when you get really interested in a certain episode of history or a certain event and you dig into it it means it it it's a it's a puzzle piece in your own psyche for you know it's a mirror for what's going on in your micro so in my case there's over the years certain stories have really grabbed me like the jfk assassination and then this past six months i mean that's partly why i wanted to do these together there are two forms of shadow work one is is the macro version one's the micro version so when we're talking about unabomber that's an episode in history that really really grabbed me there was the stockholm uh, syndrome Story, which really grabbed me. There is Ruby Ridge, really grabbed me. Waco. So there's a bunch of these that, uh, even the Benghazi story, I found quite riveting. So it made me want to dig in deeper and understand fact versus fic- fiction and make sure I got the full lesson from that episode in history. And I wanted to invite others along on that journey as well. So it's two aspects of shadow work. And that's really the, the inspiration for the podcast bringing those together and in an attempt to continue to learn and progress on the journey to rise above it all and uh, come into our own as as sovereign beings. I think along with that discussion of that journey, so this fact versus fiction, this is what I caught myself with. I think is happening (laughs) is like in the case of the Unabomber TV show, they will start the episode with a graphic bomb incident which is you know Trump traumatic to witness and then they'll slip in what looks like facts from the case like very very specific so as a viewer you tend to take those on board as undisputed facts and that's what I caught myself there's a few facts I'll get into the details when we're starting the uh the second half but there, there were a few facts that I recited in episode one as if they're facts and I'm just taking them from the TV actually which is embarrassing to admit but they got me there <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll make sure I'm clear about those about how firm those are and maybe they are accurate but I shouldn't say them like they're accurate when I've never looked at court documents and or objective uh, anything that didn't come straight from official transcripts, you know, should probably be cross-checked. So I'll I'll get into that in the second half. Um, So this journey actually has been very interesting. It's been an interesting journey, and the people in the Facebook group that's related to our website um, have been along for the ride. When I had the illness that I spoke about in episode zero, so maybe that might have been three or four years ago, as I mentioned, then it, it really made me want to dig into what's underneath it all. Uh, that that I, I came to the conclusion there's an aspect of reality I just couldn't comprehend because I couldn't comprehend that there's some highly intelligent people that architected a health system to deliberately kill people or a food chain or it's so I just that was just driving me crazy. So I got, I w- became obsessed with I really need to understand. What's going on? I can't comprehend the psychology of anybody that would do this on a mass scale. And so that that's the, the initial Facebook group was understanding the nature of reality. And that sent me down a number of rabbit holes that were extremely gratifying. And the piece, puzzle pieces were fitting and I'm connecting with like minds. And and that's a important part of the journey. But I got to a certain point where the Peterson message was pulling me... Even more, like I guess I I had kind of done my journey. I felt at the time that I had done the journey on some of the more conspiratorial tracks and rabbit holes, and I wanted to kind of come out of that and and head down the rules for life and the spirituality for atheists and that not that I was an atheist, but the uh fact based nature of those teachings really really grabbed me. So the maps of meaning and that kind of thing. Peterson was really resonating with me. And so I changed the nature of my pursuit from because I realized also that there's a limit to the rabbit hole journey. And it's extremely isolating. And it tends to make uh, others appear like just like nobody's down that rabbit hole with you. So people start to look, they all start to look like barriers. (laughs) <laughs> to your progress so the, it kind of there's it definitely is tempting to get paranoid and it's definitely tempting to get alienated and so um i thought the peterson message at a certain point was a healthier path and it was more integrative and that worked for me and that was when i changed the group to um, understanding the nature of meaning and that's been a, a great journey and now just recently i got back to mark passio and it dawned on me on episode one when I was reading the, uh, the Unabomber Manifesto to you that, that these are all coming together, <laughs> that, that uh, Peterson, and I think Passio hasn't said it in these words, but I think he would, that the nature of our existence is fundamentally a battle between good and evil. It's a spiritual battle between good and evil. And uh, when you hear somebody that's kind of religious right, if I can use that expression, uh, or orthodox religious saying something like that, it's a real turnoff. And you just don't think that person is in touch with reality. But when, it, when it, you follow the journey that Peterson takes you on and he gets to a point where he says, fundamentally, it's a, uh, life is a spiritual battle between good and evil, you start to see what he's talking about and Passio is really saying the very same thing and so on episode one it struck me the great that that the power process that the world is starving for is the great work is the spiritual challenge that we have in front of us to help the population rediscover their sovereign self their sovereign rights as as uh As sovereign beings and so the problem that the Unabomber was trying to solve which is people are completely atomized, automatized, uh, emasculized, impotized if that's not a word and uh, they're looking for the power process they need autonomy they need to challenge their abilities and they need a, a challenge that's um, important. And uh, and that's really, while I was reading that, it dawned on me that is the great work that Passio talks about. That's the spiritual awakening, which Peterson did his own version of that. And so the pieces come together. When you conclude that reality is a spiritual experience and you buy into the premise that we are at an extremely spiritually lost state. Those of you that haven't found your power process, I think that you will find it in, in your own spiritual journey and sharing that with your community, whatever that means to you. So uh, I, th- I thought that was quite an epiphany for me, that the, pr- the, the problem that we can see is solved by taking up a torch and grabbing whatever piece of it speaks to you and, uh, and, and, uh, switching your own lights on and trying to switch on the lights of anyone you can reach. So that's, uh, that's exciting to me. It's, um, what's the quote by JK Rowling? Something like, uh, rock bottom is the, is a very solid foundation to to launch your life, something like that. And uh, Rock Bottom's a very solid foundation to launch the great work but um, I I think that's the icky guy for the population. I think that's what we're faced with. So I'm interested to get your feedback. Uh, Let's do the tarot card. Set the tone. uh, Get the vibe and see if uh, the new fresh deck can uh, enlighten us on the vibe for the for the period, um, let's see here. Okay, what do we got? What do we have? Wow, that is unbelievable. I just shuffled a lot. Nobody saw that, but I think you probably could hear it. I just shuffled a lot. I can't believe that. That is a, <laughs> a again a ton of bricks over my head. It's it's the two of swords. Again, if you can believe it, blindfolded with the soul, swords over her back. So I'll read it again. Um, what I liked was the comment, which I never spent any time on in the last episode. Concord in arms. It was kind of interesting. I was talking a lot about discord, and then the tarot came up with concord in arms, which must be the opposite of discord. Um, it must mean, you know, alignment when you're under duress which is also what, um, what the great work is all about. So let's see if we can... Uh, uh, two of Swords. A hoodwinked figure. So that uh, blindfolded. I mean, anybody that remembers from the first episode, this is, of course, going to be identical. Two swords upon her shoulders. Uh, divi- divinatory meaning. Conformity and the equipoise, which it suggests. Courage, friendship, affection... Concord in a state of arms. Intimacy. Uh, The dark side of the card, if it's upside down. Imposture. Falsehood. Duplicity. Disloyalty. Well, that's really freakish that that (laughs) that came up. But again, it's integrity and alignment uh, in your relationships and in your life. Concord in a state of arms. And to me, that's what natural law brings. Natural law brings the alignment. So we'll get into that in the next episode. Courage, friendship, affection, concord, and a state of arms. Intimacy. There you go. So that's the vibe. Uh, There's definitely a strong message coming there from my new deck. Um, All right. So I will... uh, share what uh, patterns and experiences i've noticed in the microcosm i'm a little bit unique situation in terms of my geography but i think in some ways it might make some of the observations more stark because of the mixed cultures i'm living in Uh, but it's hard uh, it's hard to say i think so i notice certain things when i get back to the west and back to the first world Uh, macrocosm will get as far as we can i think We'll aim to, to read 50 to 80 paragraphs. I'll tell you what I learned from finishing the book. And um, we probably will need to s- spend some time in episode three, wrapping that up and, and debriefing. And then we've got answers from episode one and we've got the quiz for next week. Uh, here's a little reminder of the standing format. So the standing format is, we're already well into it here. Feedback, announcements, enhancements, etc. cetera. Um, the tarot poll we did, the microcosm. I'll talk about what I've been observing. And uh, we've got the two sets of guests lined up for the next two episodes, so I'm looking forward to that. And then I've got a little bit of... I want to queue up the Unabomber piece. I'll explain that when we get there, and then we'll finish with the answers from last week and questions for next week, next episode. I just kind of plunked in the microcosm macrocosm trees of life um as we progress i think this is gonna become more and more meaningful but i want to just keep it uh front of mind i'm using it for my wallpaper on my laptop and my wallpaper on my phone i just I, until we you know master it um we will uh, we'll just keep reminding ourselves and going back to it. I think it, I think it'll be powerful once we once we uh, get using it. Okay, so what have I noticed? Well, I guess not surprisingly, uh, I notice technology, um, partly because of this focus on the Unabomber story and the effect it has in our lives. One aspect, and this has been going on big time in the last. A uh, week or so for me, but these um, increasingly complex passwords, <laughs> increasingly you know, degrading memories, my memory's okay, I think for my age, and the, I think the fitter and healthier I am, the sharper it is. but uh, but still, it, it, it's not what it was when I was twenty five. I think that this capture thing, this whole thing, you're not a robot, and the face recognition I I think I'll get into that when we talk about AI before we start the, I think that's better before we start the Unibomber piece. I this is a huge point, this professional care. I don't know how this is happening. But people, it's partly that the loyalty people are there's just so many bad managers, for one thing. So this idea that say let's just keep it simple you're a barista at a coffee shop you've got to me you've got at least two loyalties one is you've got the commercial loyalty well let's go through a list of them you've got the commercial loyalty to the shop so you know economics uh you you want to gently upsell you want to be honest about the cash you want to just improve the business commercially that's one of the aspects you're doing but you're also a barista you belong to a profession and that profession has standards so that means you know a certain level depending where you are let's just cons- assume it's a top quality coffee shop the, there's levels of quality in the brewing and in the processing and in the, and the, and the hygiene and everything else of the of the equipment and the, the workspace and everything um, those are in natural tension. You've got a loyalty to your profession, that there's a certain high standard, and then you've got loyalty to the business to make sure that the, the, you know there's no waste. So um, then you've got, you know, you want to keep your customers happy and keep them coming back. And then you've got whatever your own ideals and values, you know, those are, those are st- at the base of it all. So and there's probably va- values for the uh, for the shop. There's a certain culture they're trying to they're trying to engender. Well, it just seems that increasingly, and I think this might be most roles. I don't know if people are just so desperate for a decent job that they're slavish. Sorry to use that word again, but it, they're really slavish um, to the commercial. They're just slavish to a tyrannical manager. Let's be honest <laughs> that's what it is they're slavish to a tyrannical manis, uh, manager so a lot of those other aspects become secondary and then there's this other <laughs> this other thing where i gosh i don't know how this works Did you see somebody come in that's 25 years older than you that's you know i'm not talking about just, let's just assume you're talking to each other like you're equals you don't think that person has stolen their success from you and you deserve to uh, whatever, say, take a tip when they're not looking <laughs> because after all, you know, you need it more than they do, you know? <laughs> like that this is an experience that I uh, I had a couple of times. This was maybe in the summer, but these people that, that, that are in these lower level jobs, sometimes doing a great job. But there's a jealous envy against their own customers, not a gratitude, not a like, okay, the reason I have this job, the reason my employer is able to pay me is this person's coming in and paying a very high price for a very high quality product. And let's just keep this person coming back so everybody gets their their piece. But it's not like that. It's like, who does this person think think they are coming into this shop and paying $5 for a drink they're not going to miss it if I take an extra whatever one, you know, and I'm the one that's, you know, on the, I'm the one that needs the money. They're not going to miss it. And if they don't miss it, then they, they never should have had it in the first place. You know, it's like really, really. To me, that's like when you're traveling in a very dodgy place where people are ripping people off in the, in the markets. I mean, most cultures evolve out of that. And, and first world, I mean, we're supposed to be way beyond that. And I had that experience a couple of times in Western Canada. And it's coming back around. And to me, it's it's socialistic ideals and it's uh, income distribution and it's lack of professional acumen and it's lack of ethics. It's all those things combined into one. One trend that's going on in Western Canada is the ATM uh, point of sale. They're putting, they're making... The customers go through a number of screens of tip choices for the simplest, like for for coffee, for delivery pizza. You know things where you're not having table service. So to replace the tip jar, so understand that these um, roles are getting less tips because people are carrying less change, but they're making you go through this levels of suggested tips for uh for something that's just cash register, you know there's no table service so it, it's creating this like expectation on part on the part of the working uh, staff in these retail outlets that if you skip through those screens then you're a cheapo when you know when we've all <laughs> in my experience, you don't tip unless it's table service I mean table service and and then you know you tip, Decently, and if they go above and beyond, you tip above and beyond. That's there's no like, generally, <laughs> there's no um, expected twenty percent tip on everything, including you know ordering a delivery pizza. So, I think this is a trend of socialistic values, and I don't know what it's, what it is in Europe. I'd, I'd love to hear from people in Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark if what's happening with that because you're typically ahead of us on some of these trends and so along with this okay so not so much that point about the tips but the the point before about the loyalty to the tyrannical manager um oh i could tell you stories about even staying in pretty decent hotels they you're checking out you've paid everything you were a good guest and everything was fine and and everybody's happy and they make you wait for one thing to pay your bill if that's not the craziest concept ever but not only that they um i've had a few times please wait did, did, did you did you take anything from the mini bar no i didn't touch the mini bar please wait here we're gonna go check your story okay so they're they're telling you they're telling you to your face we don't trust you and we don't care about how much how long you have to wait we're gonna go make sure you you didn't steal a soda steal a soda or or drink a soda and forget to tell us or whatever (laughs) so it's uh it's just the the idea focus on value and the focus on loyalty and the focus on customer service in some places is really deteriorating and it's becoming a bean counter, a war of the tyrannical bean counter. And uh, that's disappointing. I would expect that we'd continue to compete on greater and greater customer care. But uh, that's what I've seen. Anyway, that, that particular one wasn't recent, but this war on competence. So they're cost reducing the staff. So let's take the, now this may be more unique to this region, but I don't think so. So you take take a decent cafe and to save money, they're hiring people that don't care that much about coffee, don't care to learn about it, don't care um, <laughs> of the art form, and they uh, and so they're squeezing, they're squeezing the the economics. But immediately, the customers experiencing a fraction of the quality that that you would get if you got a real trained professional. Barista. I'm just using a simple example. It's happening in a lot of different um, different services, but they're, co- they're it's like, and I think, well, it's in the favor of tyrannical management. If there is tyrannical management, it's in their favor to not have a competition on professional acumen. It's better for them if they're if they're com- if the staff are competing for the lowest wage, but. I mean, how long can that last before you lose your entire customer base, no matter what your brand is? Anyway, that's, that's one of the trends I've been seeing. This other one, the idea, and this is this, it's a, it's a form of adultism, I guess you could say, but it's a pet concept. So, So the husband, let's say, or the boyfriend, but let's say in this example, the husband, somehow... Is okay with the wife treating him like a son, okay? Whatever that, whatever you can imagine that would be. And the wife is okay with the husband treating her like a child. So maybe monitoring her, giving her a GPS, monitoring her whereabouts, for example. And in the case of the husband, maybe she's going through his messages whenever he comes home. Okay, and both are okay with this okay so they're they're willing to give up their individuality for this uh, it's like a parent child relationship two way and they think it's sweet and I guess they I guess they think that's independent or I mean sorry intimate but um you know, that's not sweet. (laughs) It's psychotic. You have a partner who wants to monitor your every move and doesn't like trigger a conversation of honesty. Instead, it triggers monitoring and control. You're heading towards psychosis, in my way of thinking. Anyway, so the second last one is, um, and the best way I can put this is people are increasingly disturbed. And this is, you know, they've been traumatized, whatever they're watching, whatever their upbringing has been, that's partly it. They're just uneasy with their inner self. And so they are so unbelievably outer focused. And I think this, I mentioned this in the previous episode about compete and compare. So they're also doing the compete and compare, and that makes them outer focused as well. And when they see somebody who's more integrated, they just have an unbelievable urge to disturb that person. So again, with the they they the the thinking, I believe this is just a theory, but I, I believe the thinking is that person who looks like they're more at peace than me. They have taken that peace. They don't whatever that whatever is giving them that peace. I want it back. So they will. They were literally. So just an example on air, airlines. I mean, how often you have long haul flight, ten hours or twelve hours? You can't imagine how frequently the crew will wake you up and unapologetically. Okay, and I, I some of those crew are just are salt of the earth. They're unbelievably great people, but it's like I'm awake. I mean, am <laughs> It's completely unapologetic. So, uh, I to me, I take this as you're disturbed. And you're, you, 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 when you see someone at peace, you want to disturb them, so they join your disturbance. That's how, it, that's how it seems to me. So the other thing, yes. So shoelaces, oh my gosh, are leaving phones. Like, they think they're being helpful. You set your phone down beside you or your keys or whatever, and they want to come and tell you that your phone is beside you, and they think they're being helpful. I mean, they're just so obsessed with the outer and I think they think that that's what present moment awareness is. That's not present moment awareness. That's obsessing over meaningless minutia. <laughs> okay, present moment awareness, to my understanding, is 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 what's happening inside of you largely. So how is you know how is whatever's happening in the outer ref- being reflected internally? It's a very it's a very oneness oriented uh, witnessing. It's not. Shoelaces untied. You just went through airport security, and your shoelaces untied. I know it looks like you're walking to a sh- chair to sit down and fix that, but I'm going to stop and tell you anyway. <laughs> it's not helpful. So I just think it's it's OCD. It's unbelievably utter focused, and so it's screaming. Uh, people want to repossess their bodies. They want to get back into resonance with themselves and they don't know. When they see someone else that's a bit more integrated, they um, they want to disturb that. I have no idea how, in God's name, you can help a population like that. But I guess you could say all the distractions are promoting like an ADD culture, for sure. But how do you get people to to want to get back to that, I mean even some of these Eastern cultures, not even a lot of these Eastern cultures that like invented meditation and things and present moment awareness, um, they're the most disturbed of all I don't understand, but anyway, I'm open to suggestions <laughs> how to heal that 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 divide. This idea of white nights now white nights is an expression they use in, in like dating, so for example, but I mean you can I've seen it in so many. So many, just in general, let's just put it this way. In general, people are starting to get the idea that it's never okay to be angry. I think there's a few different things. Less and less people have a father in their home, or that less and less, let's say they have less healthy masculine energies in their homes. So they're not, so that when somebody is stern with them, which is a typical masculine energy, uh, they, they're, it's, they, they, they're uncomfortable with it. It's not something they grew up with. So that's one thing. So I think culturally, there is an idea that's spreading, that all anger is bad. You're never supposed to stand up for yourself. You're never supposed to um, defend anything, stand against anything. It's supposed to be always no judgment, always acceptance. Uh, it's, a, it's a pacifism kind of mentality. So if someone sees someone else standing up, let's say it's in a customer service situation where something's gone wrong with like there's been misconduct on the part of the operator, the vendor, and there's a customer saying, "Listen, this isn't okay. You're not operating on the up and up here. This is not all right. We got to sort this out." Everyone that sees that conversation seems to think the cus you know, that person's getting Defending themselves. They must be in the wrong. You know what I mean? They're saying this. And the the white knight's expression comes from this idea. It's typically extremely infantile-minded men. That they see a woman upset. They don't ask any questions. They just assume whatever she's upset about is justified. And they come to her rescue like a damsel in distress, regardless whether she wants that or not. But this white knight's... I see that, that dynamic... Everywhere. So if you decide to stand up for something, maybe it is maybe it is airport security or maybe it's like a customer service example or an airline, and you've, you say, listen, this isn't okay. Whatever it is, this isn't all right. The, p- the judgment from people around you tends to be, oh, unreasonable customer, without even having any idea what's happening. Um, and it really rattles some of the younger people that aren't used to a stern conversation of any kind. They get extremely rattled. And they immediately just conclude you're a bad guy uh, or you're an angry person <laughs> so the point here is a few things one is just because a woman's upset doesn't mean she's in the right <laughs> uh, I don't have a specific example on that but the other is um, just because someone's taking a stand doesn't mean they're in the wrong at all so the, um the trend of like make no waves go with the flow never say anything never stand up for anything never stand against anything that's like unbelievably dangerous slippery slope I guess I'm not sure why I put this on the same line but this idea of winning the first time I heard it was Charlie Sheen I don't know I don't know if he was saying it jokingly or not but I honestly it, it absolutely meant nothing to me at the time it was uh but now I understand that there are a lot of people going through their life, and what they, where they get their momentary meaning from is they're keeping a little score. They're inventing little games for themselves to compete at, and they're keeping a score, and then they're declaring winning, and that's what this Instagram culture is and the social media uh, showing off culture. It, some of it is about, and it's unbelievably dangerous. Well, for one thing, if you want to have a competition get into a competition you know judges and clocks and competitors and challenges and uh, you know something where it's actually it actually counts <laughs> uh, if but you know creating inventing a competitive game in your head where you're the scorekeeper and the judge and the ref and you also reinvent the rules as you go um, and you don't tell anybody else, what the competition is or who's winning or how much time is left in the clock or anything, that's uh, that's psycho. It's just psychopathic. That's just the best way to put it. Um, so when people are saying they're winning, I know sometimes it's just a tongue-in-cheek thing and it is kind of funny, but it's not a, entirely a joke. I mean, there are people that are going through their entire lives with a little com- competition that's completely meaningless and it's so isolating and it just throws all... Codes of conduct right out the window, because you're you've invented a game that you want to play for keeps or whatever. (laughs) Anyway, um, it's disturbing. Uh, We'll get into more about that in future episodes. This so what's to me the solution? This is why I'm finding the Mark Passio content so unbelievably um, comforting at the moment because it actually does. Just the simplicity of natural law and I think we're going to get into it in this episode helps you get your priorities straight let's put it that way and it's so unbelievably simple but it's it, there's a lot of unlearning around it the I think the scarcity mindset that's that that's when you get people into very weak weak mindsets where they're willing to backstab their friends and spy on their peers and do all kinds of things that tyrannical management can ask for when they think that time equals money and, and they're both extremely limited. So that's another control system that makes people behave very, very badly uh, against one another. And when you do occasionally get yourself into a, a mindset of abundance, I think that's what, I mean, I'm just getting glimpses of it once in a while. I'm, I'm as programmed as anybody, or I have been and uh but this abundance mindset i think that's the answer for peace and healing but it takes a lot of work to snap out of the cages so that's that's the focus uh and when i say belief system pushes things away what i mean is if you believe in scarcity if you're attached to that belief you're going to see it everywhere and um and so abundance won't won't land on your door if you're if you're uh, constantly resonating with a scarcity belief system so uh, this is the kind of thing we're trying to get to we're trying to dismantle the cages of these you know the money mentality the scarcity the time and move towards a spiritual abundance mentality so that's the goal um Communing with higher levels, I think I'll save that. That's actually going to be a topic for some guests in one episode, so I think I'll save that for now. I've mentioned that this scarcity mindset also, it creates the envy and jealousy. So people think if you've got like one tiny thing that looks more than them, whether it's peace or it's material or it's whatever, they conclude that you took it unfairly, which I, I, I think must be a projection that must mean that they're willing to take whatever they can get their hands on so there was the debate this is like a couple of years ago but uh somebody got a promotion at work i said that guy's just a complete snake in the grass he just all he does is backstab his peers and self-promote that's what he does and somebody whoever i was telling the story is like yeah you got to hand it to him though he got the promotion and <laughs> And I'm like, no, you don't got to hand it to him. (laughs) The end, you know, this is the end justifies the mean mentality. And uh, absolutely not. I think we have to get calling each other out on these transgressions for any kind of code of conduct. Um, But it just, all of these things, this is actually a good reminder. At some point in the last episode, I said something like the natural order. I said that a number of times. When I say natural order, I'm talking about natural law, which we're going to discuss in the questions of this episode. But uh, most people probably, when they hear natural order, they think of the concept natural selection, which is kill or be killed, dog eat dog. And that's the exact opposite. That's the exact opposite of natural law. So we um, we will talk about that. But the all of these control systems are trying to push people into this mentality of dog eat dog. That's where they want you. Because you're needy and you're controllable. And um, and you'll backstab your peers, you'll backstab your neighbors, you'll and it's disgusting. It's just not the world we want to live in. That's the that's the tiptoe towards t- towards hell that we're trying to avoid. So uh that's the gist. Okay, so uh I explained that I got a little bit duped with the uh, Unabomber TV show, and I have noticed this tactic happening in a couple other films and TV series where they kind of traumatize the viewer with something very graphic, and that sort of just opens you up for suggestion, and they slip in something that looks like um, indisputed (laughs) <laughs> indisputable facts that's what it looks like and that somehow goes right into you just you're in, a, in a, an acceptance state after a after a subtle or, or not subtle but a mild you know, trauma on the screen and uh, and they can write into right into your belief system practically so it's just I made me think that I should share some discernment tests that have worked for me uh, it's not cut and dried but um i find it helpful actually to know kind of when to um not go too far <laughs> because the trying to get to the bottom of some of these stories is can i mean it's a bottomless pit so you have to decide at some point okay i've got the general gist i kind of have an idea of the mode of means and opportunity and then there's some tests basically so one of the uh Re- very useful concepts <clears throat> that came out of the Peterson-Harris debates from 2018. So Sam Harris, he is a intellectual uh, that he's referred to as one of the four horsemen of the atheists, modern atheists, and um, very witty, very intelligent guy. And he and uh, Peterson started to tangle. He uh, Sam has a podcast and um, the most requested guest from Sam's base was to get Peterson into his podcast. So they eventually arranged it and Peterson has a a different worldview. He he subscribes to something more like pragmatism which is a U.S. born philosophy actually which could take a whole episode to (laughs) explain. I looked into it quite deeply maybe uh, six months ago and I I, I'm, not, I'm not to the bottom of it, but I got the general gist, and I really like the concept. But um, the concept is basically, if it works in reality, then it is, then it is true. It's, the test is, is the functionality. Where Sam is kind of, uh, I guess you could say, the current mainstream scientist... Newtonian view of reality, where the, there's a total separation between uh, consciousness and and the reality, and you can through uh, the scientific method you can learn all you need to learn, and you could even discover and develop a moral system, and that's kind of what he advocates. One of his books is called The Moral Landscape, which um, which he use that image to think about like let's just agree as a human race that that there's certain um troughs in the moral landscape that are intolerable we've gotten to a point where we 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 sh- we know there's certain practices that are intolerable and let's just let's just agree as a human race that that there are limits to there's there's a there's a floor in our and you know human rights worldwide and, and so he was promoting an atheistic, scientific, almost based morality and developing that, which he hasn't fully developed, but the concept, the thinking he's developed. So anyway, those two tangled. Sorry, a small digression there, but it was, a, it was an unbelievably rewarding journey to follow. They had two podcast um, debates on Sam's show and then they had four public appearances. They were selling out... Stadiums like five thousand people, and it's all on YouTube uh, uh, for free, and it's riveting uh, if you're into that kind of thing. And um, but one of the great kind of phrases that came out in the early uh, in- encounters was um, this idea of a metaphorical truth that um, there are certain things that are that are useful. Whether or not they're factually true, they're still useful to guide your life. So an example was, um, everything happens for a reason. That's a that's a belief that a lot of us subscribe to. And it really helps when something terrible happens. It really helps you move on and think, well, I'll see the meaning of this in the future. Um, and you often hear people saying, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me, those kinds of things. The idea of metaphorical truth, the, the best example they used to illustrate the point was... Uh, when people are teaching gun safety, they teach um, every single gun owner, they teach them to always handle a gun as if it's loaded. Even if you know the barrel is empty, you've checked it three times, and you're, maybe you're, um, your partner's checked it as well, and everybody in the room knows it's, it's empty, you still handle it as if it's loaded. It's just a good tr- It's a good metaphorical truth to live by. I think that that concept is helpful with some of these conspiracies. So take 9-11. You know, eventually you can find yourself down a bottomless pit of, of facts, but you can get to yourself to a point where you think you have the gist enough to get the metaphorical truth of what happened. And now you kind of have a new chunk in your armor, a new chink in your armor of, uh, of how things are working. You know something that's as huge as that, and you can conclude. You can look at um, just like a crime: what was the motive, means, and opportunity, and then what was the implications? What what took place? If you just kind of draw a black box around the event, and just pay attention to um, motive, means, opportunity, and then outcomes: what happened because of that event? And then you can dig into the facts to the to the point that satisfies you to get a metaphorical truth that's useful. And that's basically one of the mechanisms that I use to get myself to a point of, okay, I think, I think I've looked at this enough. I've got the general gist. I've got the, I've got the truth to the point that it's most useful to me now, and I can always go back if I have more questions. The metaphor that I like to use is um, just like when you go into the eye doctor, and they're testing your eyes and they're flipping lenses. I know this is like mechanical, so some of the new ones are more electronic, but the mechanical ones where they're flipping lenses and you're looking at the screen, they'll say, is it better or worse? Is it better or worse? Is it better or worse? And they're flipping up and flipping down, flipping up and flipping down. Um, That's a test that I use when I'm asking myself about the truth of a situation. Does the world make more sense if I believe this or make less sense. (laughs) And uh, just like a lens. Okay, if I put that lens on, it actually makes sense of a whole lot of these threads. It explains a lot of threads that I'm carrying around that don't make any sense otherwise. And uh, that that has helped me getting closer and closer to a more solid understanding of some of these conspiratorial stories. I think you absolutely have to jump into the ones that grab you the most. But there's a point where you think you have the black box boxed off and you can develop a metaphorical truth that's useful to guide you on that story and you can kind of park it there and carry on with with that lens selected and then, you know, never forget that the, the it can it can always evolve as facts emerge. But I found those kind of mechanisms useful for me. So some of the other stories, I mean this the, the one, so the, one of the reasons I would say that people like Peterson doesn't go anywhere near Michael Sarion or Mark Passio, I don't, I don't entirely blame him because he's trying to maximize his impact. And if he associates himself with guys that have gone public with some theories on aliens, um, he's a risk that he could just get marginalized and then his message won't, get, won't hit the mainstream, the same effect. If you do go down those tracks with David Icke or Michael Sarion or Mark Passio and some of the more tangential or more, I guess, um, controversial uh, concepts they present, you don't have to uh, get too caught up in it. Just study it enough to, um, to, to to get your metaphorical truth. So the ones I've listed here, this reptilians, I mean, that can easily just be a metaphor for people who, are purely satanic they're just they'd eat they're young they would uh they're completely psychopathic they're cold-blooded um you know it doesn't have to actually be uh shapeshifters you know you can stop there you don't have to uh, same thing michael sarion a big piece of his work was the irish origins of civilization he has a, a book called of the same title and with a lot of proof around the um I'll try and share it on the podcast links. There was an ancient advanced culture in Ireland that he has evidence that migrated to Egypt. They brought a lot of those advanced technologies to Egypt. So that's, uh, you know, that's one theory that would, it would make a lot of people um, reject everything he ever says just because they have a hard time with an alternative history. But look into it to the point that that's helpful for you, and then I mean that's what I that's what I would recommend. I, and Cosmic abandonment—that's another one. That's I think they both have a, a version of that, and uh, that's probably one of the most crazy ideas compared to the mainstream. But they're researchers, and they've got facts. So look at their facts, and then decide what um, what works for you. That's my advice. On and same thing with the Unibomber. I'm going to try and Delineate what we know factually from from the Hollywood. There's so much, it's so difficult sometimes some of these stories and they're coming through the media. One other, just a little aside, I did get some feedback that I'm enjoying. The, I think it's really going to helpful for me, and I hope that you're enjoying it as well. the The transcript of the manifesto, but um, one of the pieces of feedback is that they like hearing more. Some of the listeners like to hear more of my interpretation than the actual source code. <laughs> so I'll just take that into consideration for future, but I'll definitely finish this one. Uh, my blog posts on the, on the um, Synthesis site often have themes from movies and books, and I, I actually find that a really, really um, rewarding way to develop my thinking around some of these concepts. I mean, great authors and great literature... They have a way of getting metaphorical truth across in in a very engaging way. And um, so I'm sure that some of those themes will carry over into the podcast. All right, so let's jump into the macrocosm. So some of the things that I just repeated from the show, I have to admit, was that, I mean, for one thing they said in the TV series, they said there was never any evidence of another member, even though he always referred to FC as a collective, so as a plural. And they said that FC, so FC was definitely the signature on the manifesto and some of the threats that were mailed in, but they, and they said that it was always etched in the bombs, but I I don't know that for sure. I mean, I just got that from the TV show, so I don't know that for sure. In one of the links I shared on episode one, that was a really excellent documentary, YouTube documentary, but t- two hours long by a German film crew. They really dug into the links um, with the Unabomber and links to Vietnam and links to MK Ultra, and they even went and interviewed some of the bomb victims and asked them what they thought of the manifesto, and without exception, the bomb victims never read the manifesto. They're, they're innocent victims, so don't get me wrong. They're absolutely innocent victims. They don't deserve any of that. But when somebody actually goes to that trouble to bomb you because of work you're doing, I'm really shocked that you don't want to go and look into what, where, what the thinking is behind that. But they're able to, to just say, I don't want to look, I don't want to know, I don't want to give this guy any after what he did. So anyway, in that documentary, there was a point where the filmmakers were were in correspondence with Ted Kaczynski in prison he said that there were mistakes in the published versions on the newspapers which to me means he thinks they were corrupted so some of his stronger points were manipulated and it's very very difficult to get the original because he said in that recording there only the originals are handwritten and very hard to read and there's only a couple of copies of them floating around so if anyone... I mean, I think it would be a fascinating study to see what was manipulated in the published versions because then you'll know what of his points the um, the authorities were most threatened by. I think that would be really, really enlightening if anyone has any idea how to get their hands on the original. Uh, so he's always claimed his innocence. So you've got a guy that everyone believes is the Unabomber. He went to trial, the trial was fixed. That was, um, that was in the TV show, but it was also in other sources. Uh, where did I read that? Anyway, uh, something quite credible, that, uh, that his defense counsel colluded with the prosecution and the judge, and they, they had a deal without his knowing ahead of the case. So, I mean, if that's not corruption of due process, that's incredible. He's always claimed his innocence, yet he went and put his name on a book called uh, "Anti-Tech Revolution: Why and How," and you know that's very close to the themes and writing style of the manifesto. So, to me, there's a there's definitely an admission that he wrote the manifesto. Um, but I don't know how strong the facts are about 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 the bombs. The, the, I, I don't know what how strong. <laughs> the linkages they kind of alluded that there was like a second cabin where they found some materials that could have been used for bomb making but i don't know how strong those ties are so uh, i think you know if he's if he hasn't actually been proven guilty in the court of law with the facts i'd say it's pretty safe to say that he wrote you know bomb, the manifesto so that probably means that he phoned in threats so you know the circumstantial evidence is really strong but in terms of actually manufacturing the bombs and actually manning the bombs, I don't know how, long, how strong the, that case is. So I just have to be, be clear and honest about that. Uh, I, will, I will continue to include the links on the podcast. Okay, so I think that it's going to be most useful as, as for the listener if, if I tell you some, what I thought some of his strongest points are from the book so that when we get into the manifesto, you are primed for what some, you know, uh, 20 years later, what some of his strongest points remained. Uh, one is this idea of AI. That's something that Max Spears was absolutely convinced about, that there's an intelligence in our technology that's monitoring and manipulating. I, I'm not sure about manipulating, but definitely monitoring and influencing. That's probably a better word. <laughs> um our experience at times so i know that sounds a bit out there but x files but uh it's worth carrying that lens around with you like this to me the face recognition this is what i started to say earlier the face recognition those really annoying i'm not a robot captcha exercises that are unbelievably tricky sometimes you know is this a tree or just does this count as a tree does this count as a motorcycle or is this count as a rider you know there's they, they they i i don't think it's accidental that some of those some of those CAPTCHA tests are incredibly difficult to decide which ones are in and which ones are out and i think i mean if you were an ai and you wanted to learn uh human strengths and weaknesses and human intelligence i mean that's a perfect way to perfect way to go about it and the face scanning um my, I consider him a friend, uh, uh, definitely one of the connections on the website Ole Demogard. I've, I've met and had dinner with he and his wife once at a conference, and uh, I've got the utmost respect for his work and his integrity, and I know he's done some pieces on the face-scanning technology, but what, what I've got a phone that does that now, and I always feel a little bit like something was taken to me whenever it does the face scan taken from me. Again, if you're an AI, you could monitor the emotional state of everybody with a face scanner all day long. So you know what you can easily collect and analyze the emotional state of the population that way. And uh, that's kind of creepy to think about. I think AI is a worthwhile lens to consider and carry around. And this increasingly complex, I mentioned this as well, passwords, like the thing I Amazon I had a nightmare with uh Amazon Gmail I've got you know you've got 10 or 12 of these accounts you can't possibly keep them in your mind and uh anyway it what's the end result of that experience one is you start to kind of doubt yourself you kind of feel weak like these complicated passwords and they keep changing So you start to get a bit forgetful about your own passwords and feel like a bit of a loser when you can't log into your own Gmail account, for example. And it's frustrating. I mean, it's really, really frustrating to get locked out of your Amazon account when you're trying to ship yourself something or what have you. I'm willing to continue to test the idea that there's an AI behind some of this that is uh, learning from our limits and learning from our emotions there. But okay, I'm just testing that idea. I can't say that I have a really strong conviction on this, but uh, I think it's already out there and it's already evolving. That's my uh, pet opinion on the matter. Okay, one of the strongest points in that film, which was directly inspired by the Unabomber work, was a German... What was he? I think he was... He was, uh, he may have been a mathematician. He's a very, very thoughtful. He could have been either a philosopher or a mathematician or a combination near the end. This, to me, is, is one of the strongest points in the favor of being nervous about technology, okay? That's what I'm going through here. He pointed out that the words science, schism, scissors, school, I think, even, you get the gist, that it's a split, okay? that science is designed to split the mind and create an outer focus. And that's why it's dangerous. It, uh, it's a de- dehumanizing pursuit. And so I think that's worth keeping in mind. As I said in the in the first episode, I can't imagine, I mean, from our perspective now, imagining somebody prohibiting any further advance in technology. That just sounds like... That sounds more tyrannical than the technology, as I mentioned before. So, But I think it's worth looking at. I mean, we can all see some of the negatives from how far we've come on some of this technology. Some of the social network culture and cyberbullying and privacy violations and on and on it goes. Fingerprinting and eye scanning. So if you consider that science is a schism in the mind, then you can see how someone could conclude that you got to stop at some point or or it's headed directly for total destruction. So I don't know if anyone's heard of the concept of Fermi Paradox. This is one I personally don't subscribe to, but it's worth sharing because it is a great point in one respect. And the Fermi Paradox is basically... The idea that we haven't heard from any other advanced civilizations. No radio waves, nothing. <laughs> so the, con- the thinking is that civilizations that get advanced technologically self-destruct. That's the thinking. And so there's a lesson to be learned there. Um, this mass extinction event, I've got a connection. Who I feel like we're friends, but we were only, we've only um, connected through direct messaging but I looked pretty deeply into his work at one point. He's a uh, quantum physicist, Mike Emery. He's one of the top publishers on uh, academia.edu, I believe it is. And um, he said, just like they said in the... He, he makes this case in his book, that um, there's a evidence, and people that have really looked deeply into it believe strongly that there were five... Intelligent, at least five intelligent, advanced civilizations, on Earth before us, and they all self-destructed. There's another kind of <laughs> warning sign that there is something extremely dangerous about blindly uh, advancing down the industrial, technological track, and and you know people. That's what people are. Some people are predicting that if you continue, there's another mass extinction event on the way. To me, the strongest point, and I, this came through really w- well in the miniseries on Netflix, that, that every... Okay, I'll give you the car example, because that was such a perfect one. Because when we still, to this day, when you think of a car, you think of a brilliant innovation that gives people independent freedom. It, you, can have, you can run your own business out of a car, You can be self-sufficient. You could leave your home when you're 16 if you get your own car. I mean, when you're in a bad home situation and you have just a car, you can have a lot of independence. Um, So we all love our cars. And when they came along in the horse and buggy days, it looked like, you know, a small enhancement on a horse and buggy. It's just a motorized. It can go a little further, less maintenance. There's more terrain, you know, less weather concerns and so on and so on. But his point, the Unabomber's point, is that then, soon, you're no longer wandering anywhere you want. Now you're wandering on predefined tracks. And the predefined tracks have rules and lights and controls. So now uh, you're much easier to be controlled and monitored. And cities are getting built. Also, all, new, all new communities are, are built for cars. So then it becomes you have to have a car. To function, so it's no longer like this step towards freedom. It's now this extra financial burden to enter society, and it's easily controllable, and it's um, and it's not optional uh, in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. Just like the struggles, you're probably you, you probably can imagine when your kids are in their teens about giving them a phone. It's a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. You can see that with a lot of technologies, that um, you don't give them the phone, they're not, they're not communicating. They get, they get socially alienated through pe- from the people that are communicating that way. You give them a phone, it's like a, you've got all kinds of people with access to your kids and all kinds of bad behaviors that go unmonitored on the uh, social networking sites that can be really negative to their psyche. I never looked at a car as anything but positive until that but I think it's a really original and insightful way to look at technology and consider if we're actually building the walls of our own electronic prison. I don't know who said it that way the first but I think that that's, you know, we're the ones inventing the uh, face scanning technology and the eye scanning technology and the cameras everywhere. and and then they're being used to monitor us and control us in a lot of ways. So um, I think it's a really healthy lens to carry and consider. At what point is it have, are we working for the technology, not the other way around? I think that's really, really um, uh, worth considering. Okay, I think some of his weakest points. So the book, I read everything to do with the why. And the appendix is also really great. If you wanted, to, if you actually get your hands on the book, you could spend maybe 90 minutes or less on the appendices, because on the appendices he's got the strongest points for each of the chapters, and those are great, as well in terms of kind of a Cole's notes version. I didn't. The the there was two chapters on on uh, rebellions and successful rebellions and how to how to manage a successful rebellion and so on. Uh, And I read one of those, I think. So there's one of those chapters I just didn't feel like I needed to read right now. I guess what I would say some of his weakest points. So there was a letter to the editor that he included in the appendix. A great question. They said, well, capitalism seems like it it really leads us towards technical innovation. Capitalism creates a pressure where you want to do everything uh, faster, more repeatable, more uh, automated and so what don't you think the capitalism system is flawed and I don't think he had a great answer to that his answer was basically no you know capitalism in and of itself isn't flawed but I think I just don't think even though he's a great mind I'm not sure he's completely framed the problem I mean maybe it's really difficult with the diet he probably has in prison and the conditions he's got maybe his mind isn't working like the way it used to be but um but I don't think he's framed the. He, he's, he's raised the flags. He's raised those flags that I just mentioned. But I, I'm not 100% sure that he's framed the issue in terms of, like, uh, well, at one point the wheel was technology. So would you say inventing the wheel was, you know, we should have stopped there? Or, like, he hasn't, like, demarked <laughs> the, the limits and why, you know, at a certain point, okay, microchip. Was the microchip, I mean, that was the step too far? But what he is saying is he that he can see that we're heading for self-destruction and we're building the walls of our own prison and it's time to to stop. It's time to stop advancing on that path and let people get back to a more spiritual connection with the earth and with each other. And it's hard to argue with, with some of that, but it's just more like the how. You know, um, I, I think that... Maybe those are some of the weaker, the weaker examples that, um, that he hasn't framed it, I don't think. I don't think he's gotten to the bottom of it. He's taken one manifestation of our psychology, I guess you could almost say. And I think there's a few levels underneath that you could get to where you could uh, demark the problem and you could raise flags when you're, when you're getting into a danger zone. The, the, theoretically, that's where I'm at. Okay, well, let's jump over to the, uh, maybe read 50 paragraphs or so, and we'll probably wrap um, wrap up the manifesto in the next episode. All right, so we left off paragraph 93 in the Washington Post version. We are going to argue that industrial technology, technological society, cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom because... Freedom is a word that can be interpreted in many ways. First, make clear what kind of freedom we're concerned with. By freedom, we mean the opportunity to go through the power process with real goals, not the artificial goals of surrogate activities and without interference, manipulation, or supervision from anyone, especially from any large organization. Freedom means being in control either as an individual or as a member of a small group of the life and death issues of one's existence, food, clothing, shelter, and defense against whatever threats there may be in one's environment. Freedom means having power, not the power to control other people, but the power to control the circumstances of one's own life. I didn't realize how critical this This We stopped at a very critical point. One does not have freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one, no matter how benevolently, tolerantly, and permissively that power may be exercised. It is important not to confuse freedom with mere permissiveness. This uh, situation reminds me, I mentioned, the family farm community that I spent my summers in from childhood right through until my teens, until I was 18. I think I witnessed that community going from true freedom, independent operators, cooperating often with co-opting, supporting one another, but also competing in the marketplace. And slowly over time, Large organizations and governments started to control the dynamics of their economy, and over time, the thriving independent farm o- family farm operators were squeezed to well much much more. Uh, well, they were squeezed so much they had to get into um, they had to change professions or they had to ramp up the scale dramatically, and then they got into. Environmental challenges because their farms got so large that they you know they have got environmental concerns then, and you've got to squeeze costs everywhere and anyway that's an aside. Ninety five, it is said that we live in a free society because we have a certain number of constitutionally guaranteed rights, but these are not as important as they seem. Uh, I think I sorry on on ninety four I need to make one other point here. Freedom means not having power, not the power to control other people, but the power to control the circumstances of one's own life. One does not have freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one, no matter how benevolently, tolerantly, and permissively that power may be exercised. So I just wanted to make this point. Just some of the content I've been listening to this week from Mark Passio, he makes the point strongly that there's certain uh, beliefs we don't have a right to have, and one of them is that Slavery is okay for some people. You, you don't have the right to allow yourself to be enslaved. That's not actually a, a right that you have. You're 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 um you're transgressing yourself in that case. So if you're permissively allowing yourself to be enslaved, you're transgressing against yourself, your own natural rights. Okay, ninety-five. The degree of personal freedom that exists in a society is determined more by the economic and technological structure of a society than than by its laws or its forms of government. Most of the Indian nations of New England were, were monarchies, and many of the cities of the Italian Renaissance were controlled by dictators. But in reading about these societies, one gets the impression that they allowed far more personal freedom than our society does. In part, this was because they lacked efficient mechanisms for enforcing the rulers will. There were no modern, well-organized police forces, no rapid, long-distance communications, no surveillance cameras, no dossiers of information about the lives of average citizens. Hence, it was relatively easy to evade control. As for our constitutional rights, consider, for example, that freedom of the press. We certainly don't mean to knock that right. It's a very important tool for limiting concentration of political power and for keeping those who do have political power in line by publicly exposing any misbehavior on their part. But freedom of the press is of very little use to the average citizen as an individual. The mass media are mostly under the control of large organizations that are integrated into the system. Anyone who has a little money can have something printed or can distribute it on the internet or in some such way, but what he has to say will be swamped by the vast volume of material put out by the media. Hence, it will have no practical effect. Don't forget this was um, published, I think it was around 95, right? So he was probably writing this in the late 80s. To make an impression on society with words is therefore almost impossible. For most individuals and small groups, take us, uh, FC for example. If we had never done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have been accepted. If they had been accepted and published, they probably would not have attracted many readers because it's more fun to watch the entertainment put out by the media than to read a sober essay. Even if these writings had many readers, most of these readers would soon have forgotten what they had read as their minds were flooded by the mass material to which the media exposed them. In order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. Okay, so there you go. If this... If this was an uncorrupted part, the uh, FC is confessing that they... So whoever wrote the manifesto is confessing that they killed people. And then Ted Kaczynski later writes a book called (laughs) Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How. So there's nothing funny about that, but there's definitely an association, uh, even though he's never admitted guilt. Okay, constitutional rights are useful up to a point, but they do not serve... To guarantee much more than what might be called the bourgeois conception of freedom. According to the bourgeois concept, a free man is essentially an element of social machine and has only a certain set of prescribed and delimited freedoms, freedoms that are designed to serve the needs of the social machine more than those of the individual. Thus, the bourgeois free man has economic freedom because that promotes growth and progress. He has freedom of the press because public criticism restrains behavior by political leaders. He has a right to a fair trial because imprisonment at the will at the whim of the power of the powerful would be a bad for the system. This was clearly the attitude of Simon Bolivar. To him, people deserve liberty only if they use it to promote progress, progress as conceived by the bourgeois. Other bourgeois thinkers have taken a similar view of freedom as a mere means to collective ends. Chester C. Tan, Chinese political thought in the 20th century, page 202, explains the philosophy of Kuomintang leader Hu Hanmin. An individual is granted rights because he is a member of society. And his community life requires such rights. By community, Hu means the whole society of the nation. And on page 259, Tan states that according to Chang Chun Mai, head of the state, freedom had to be used in the interest of the state and of the people as a whole. But What kind of freedom does one have if one can use it only as someone else prescribes? I mean, just the implication here that, <laughs> that there's someone granting rights to someone else, that's just flawed right there. Um, FC's conception of freedom is not that of Bolivar Hu, Chang or other bourgeois theorists the trouble with such theorists is that they have made the development and application of social theories their surrogate activity consequently the theories are designed to serve the needs of the theorists more than the needs of the people who may be unlucky enough to live in a society on which their theories are imposed 98 one more point to be made in this section It should not be assumed that a person has enough freedom just because he says he has enough. Freedom is restricted in part by psychological controls, uh, also referred to as mind control, of which people are unconscious. And moreover, many people's ideas of what constitutes freedom are governed more by social convention than by their real needs, for example. It's likely that many leftists of the over-socialized type would say, then most people, including themselves, are socialized too little rather than too much. Yet the over-socialized leftist pays a heavy psychological price for his high level of socialization. I think domestication is another word, and I I think over-feminized. I'm sorry to say, but I think that's what over-socialized means. It means, and that can be men and women. It can mean just the healthy masculine energy is sucked out of the society. Some principles of history. Think of history as being the sum of two components. An erratic component that exists of unpredictable events that follow no discernible pattern, and a regular component that consists of long-term historical trends. Here we're concerned with the long-term trends. First principle. If a small change is made that affects a long-term historical trend, then the effect of that change will almost always be transitory. The trend will soon revert to its original state. For example, a reform movement designed to clean up political corruption in a society rarely has more than a short-term effect. Sooner or later, the reformers relax and corruption creeps back in. The level of political corruption in a given society tends to remain constant, or to, to change only slowly with the evolution of the society. Normally, a political cleanup will be permanent only if accompanied by a widespread social change a small change in the society won't be enough if a small change in a long-term historical trend appears to be permanent it is only because the change acts in the direction in which the trend is already moving so that the trend is not altered by only a pushed so that, so that the trend is not altered but only pushed a step ahead the first principle is almost a tautology which is a redundancy. If a trend were not stable with respect to small changes, it would wander at random rather than follow a definite direction. In other words, it would not be a long-term trend at all. Second principle, if a change is made that is sufficiently large to alter permanently a long-term historical trend, then it will alter the society as a whole. In other words, the society is a system in which all parts are interrelated and you can't permanently change any important part without changing all other parts as well. Third principle, if a change is made that is large enough to alter permanently a long-term trend, then the consequences for society as a whole cannot be predicted in advance, unless various other societies have passed through the same change and have all experienced the same consequences, in which case one can predict, on empirical grounds, That another society that passes through the same change will be likely to experience similar consequences. So, that point, let me just say the first sentence again. If a change is made that's large enough to alter permanently a long term trend, then the consequences for the society as a whole cannot be predicted in advance, okay, unless you have an empirical history there. Okay, fourth principle a new kind of society cannot be designed on paper. That is, you can't plan out a new form of society in advance then set it up and expect it to function as it was designed to. The third and fourth principles result from the complexity of human societies. A change in human behavior will affect the economy of a society and its physical environment. The economy will affect the environment and vice versa. And the changes in the economy and the environment will affect human behavior in complex, unpredictable ways, and so forth. The network of causes and effects is far too complex be untangled and understood. Fifth principle, people do not consciously and rationally choose the form of their society. Societies develop through processes of social evolution that are not under human control. The fifth principle is a consequence of the other four. To illustrate, by the first principle, generally speaking, an attempt at social reform either acts in the direction of the society is developing anyway, so it merely accelerates a change that was coming anyway, or it only has a transitory effect, so the society soon slips back to its old groove muscle memory, in my words. To make a lasting change in the direction of development of any important aspect of a society, reform is insufficient and revolution is required. A revolution does not necessarily involve an armed uprising, or the overthrow of a government. By the second principle, a revolution never changes only one aspect of a society. It changes the whole society. And by the third principle, changes occur that were never expected or desired by the revolutionary, unintended consequences. So by the fourth principle, when revolutionaries or utopians set up a new kind of society, it never works out as planned. The American Revolution does not provide a counterexample. example The American Revolution was not a revolution in our sense of the word, but a war of independence followed by a rather far-reaching political reform. The Founding Fathers did not change the direction of development of American society, nor did they aspire to do so. They only freed the development of the American society from the retarding effect of British rule. Their political reform did not change any basic trend, but only pushed American political culture along its natural direction of development. British society, of which American society was an offshoot, had been moving for a long time in the direction of representative democracy, and prior to the War of Independence, the Americans were already practicing a significant degree of representative democracy in the colonial assemblies. The political system established by the Constitution was modeled on the British system and on the colonial assemblies. With major alteration, to be sure, there is no doubt that the Founding Fathers took a very important step. But it was a step along the road that English-speaking world was already traveling. The proof is that Britain and all of its colonies that were populated predominantly by people of British descent ended up with systems of representative democracy essentially similar to that of the U.S. If the Founding Fathers had lost their nerve and declined to sign the Declaration of Independence, our way of life today would not have been significantly different. I've not studied this history that much, but I think he's uh, stretching it here a little bit, but that's okay. That's, it's his manifesto. Maybe we would have had somewhat closer ties to Britain and would have had Parliament and Prime Minister... Instead of a Congress and President, no big deal. Thus, the American Revolution provides not a counterexample to our principles, but a good illustration of them. Still, one has to use common sense in applying the principles. They are expressed in imprecise language that allows latitude for interpretation, and exceptions to them can be found. So we present these principles not as inviolable, inviolable uh, laws, but as rules of thumb or guides to thinking that may provide a partial antidote to naive ideas about the futures of society. The principles should be born constantly in mind, and whenever one reaches a conclusion that conflicts with them, one should be careful about re-examining one's thinking and retain the conclusion only if one has good solid reasons for doing so. Okay, this is a point that Peterson, Jordan Peterson makes frequently. Social reforms and unintended consequences are always intertwined. OK, 111, the foregoing principles help to show how hopelessly difficult it would be to reform the industrial system in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing our sphere of freedom. This is kind of amazing. I mean, he's just saying that we're on one track, the industrial technological track. And, it's gonna, and as long as we choose that that's our track, it's going to continue to narrow our freedom there has been a consistent tendency going back at least to the industrial revolution for the technology to strengthen the system <clears throat> at a high cost in individual freedom and local autonomy hence any change designed to protect freedom from technology would be a contrary would be contrary to a fundamental trend in the development of society consequently such a change either would be a transitory one, soon swamped by the tide of history, or if large enough to be permanent, would alter the nature of our whole society. This by the first and second principles, period. Moreover, since society would be altered in a way that could not be predicted in advance, third principle, there would be great risk. Changes large enough to make a lasting difference in favor of freedom would not be initiated because it would be realized that they would gravely disrupt the system. So, any attempts at reform would be too timid to be effective. Okay, this is why this is his case for revolution. Even if changes large enough to make a lasting difference were initiated, they would be retracted when their disruptive effects became apparent. Thus, permanent changes in favor of freedom could be brought about only by persons prepared to accept radical, dangerous, and unpredictable alteration of the entire system. In other words, revolutionaries, not reformers. People anxious to rescue freedom without sacrificing the supposed benefits of technology will suggest naive schemes for some new form of society that would reconcile freedom with technology. Apart from the fact that people who make such suggestions seldom propose any practical means by which the new form of society could be set up in the first place, it follows from the fourth principle that even if the new form of society could, once, could be once established, it either would collapse or would give results very different from those expected. So even on very general grounds, it seems highly improbable that any way of changing society could be found that would reconcile freedom with modern technology. In the next few sections, we will give more specific reasons for concluding that freedom and technological progress are incompatible. Just as an incidental aside episode on this, but Mark Passio would say that freedom and government are incompatible, not that, that the technological side of things is a small piece of the puzzle. I've not heard him talk about technology as it relates to freedom at all. Um, He's a technologist, actually, but, uh, but he believes that many of the problems that Ted Kaczynski is pointing to here are caused by the government system, not the technological industrial system. That's an aside for future discussion. Okay, next section. Restriction of freedom is unavoidable in industrial society. As explained in paragraphs 65, 67, and 70 to 73, modern man is strapped down by a network of rules and regulations, and his fate depends on the actions of persons remote from him whose decision he cannot influence. This is not accidental or a result of the arbitrariness of arrogant bureaucrats. It's necessary and inevitable in any technologically advanced society. The system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function. At work, people have to do what they are told to do, otherwise production would be thrown into chaos. Bureaucracies have to be run according to rigid rules to allow any substantial personal discretion to lower-level bureaucrats would disrupt the system and lead to charges of unfairness due to differences in the way the individual bureaucrats exercise their discretion. It is true that some restrictions on our freedom could be eliminated, but generally speaking, the regulation of our lives by large organizations is necessary for the functioning of the industrial technological society. The result is a sense of powerlessness on the part of the average person. It may, however, it may be, however, that formal regulations will tend increasingly to be replaced by psychological tools that make us want to do what the system requires of us, also known as mind control. And there's a footnote there. Okay, 115. The system has to force people to behave in ways that are increasingly remote from the natural pattern of human behavior. For example, the system needs scientists, mathematicians, and engineers. It can't function without them. So heavy pressure is put on children to excel in these fields. It isn't natural for an adolescent human being to spend the bulk of his time sitting at a desk, absorbed in study. A normal adolescent wants to spend his time in active contact with the real world among primitive peoples. The things that children are trained to do tend to be in reasonable harmony with natural human impulses. Among the American Indians, for example, boys were trained in active outdoor pursuits just the sort of things that boys like. But in our society, children are pushed into studying technical subjects, which most do grudgingly. This gives you a little, um, this could give you some skepticism about the big push for women in STEM right now. I mean, it's under the guise of equity, but maybe there are other motives. There's a commercial or an ad on uh, Emirates Airlines where they list all these great technical innovations of, the, of our time, And then it says, the point of the ad is, we have to do more. We have to invent more. So it's like it's, it's, it's promoting people to get more technological. I mean, where's that ad coming from, and what's the motive behind that? Okay, so 116. Because of the constant pressure that the system exerts to modify human behavior, there is a gradual increase in the number of people who cannot or will not adjust to society's requirements welfare leeches, youth gang members, cultists, anti-government rebels, radical environmentalists, saboteurs, dropouts, and resistors of various kinds. In any technologically advanced society, the individual's fate must depend on decisions that he personally cannot influence to any great extent. A technological society cannot be broken down into small autonomous communities because production depends on the cooperation of very large numbers of people and machines. Such a society must be highly organized, and decisions have to be made that affect very large numbers of people. When a decision affects, say, a million people, then each of the affected individuals has on average only one millionth share in making the decision. What usually happens in practice is that decisions are made by public officials or corporate executives or by technical specialists, but even When the public votes on a decision, the number of voters ordinarily is too large for the vote of any one individual to be significant. Thus, most individuals are unable to influence measurably the major decisions that affect their lives. There is no conceivable way to remedy this in in a technologically advanced society. The system tries to solve this problem by using propaganda to make people want the decisions that have been made for them. But even this solution, quote-unquote, were completely, even if it was were completely successful in making people feel better, it would be demeaning. One other little aside, I read a small book once. Uh, it was called something like Initial Conditions. I can't quite remember, but let's say it was Initial Conditions. It was written by, I think it was a woman software engineer. She was talking about, this is just something subtle, but, but he just mentioned that that you know, there are technical specialists that can affect massive aspects of your life, and you don't even think of it. But think of the people. You've got sometimes very low-level software engineers deciding what the default settings are of your next iPhone, for example. And that completely affects... Most people don't change all the settings as soon as they get their phone. They, most of them go with most of the preset default settings. So you've got fairly low-level software engineers in these major corporations that are really shaping the behavior of a large um, percentage of the culture. Okay, 118. Conservatives and some some others advocate more local autonomy. Local communities once did have autonomy, but such autonomy becomes less and less possible as local communities become more enmeshed with and dependent on large-scale systems like public utilities, computer networks, highway systems, the mass communications media, the modern healthcare system. Also operating against autonomy is the fact that technolo- technology applied in one location often affects people at other locations far away. Thus, pesticide or chemical use near a creek may contaminate the water supply hundreds of miles downstream, and the greenhouse gas affects the world affects the whole world. Uh, another example is what side of the road you're driving your car on. Are you on the US standard or the UK standard? And you've got some small countries in Southeast Asia who have chosen to go on opposite standards and the trouble that causes with the supply of the vehicles and you know crossing the border with vehicles is a nightmare. So it just shows you that The larger the system, the more dependent it is on standards that affect everyone. The system does not and cannot exist to satisfy human needs. Instead, it is human behavior that has to be modified to fit the needs of the system. This has nothing to do with political or social ideology that may pretend to guide the technological system. It is the fault of the technology because the system is guided not by ideology but by technical necessity. The system does satisfy many human needs, but generally speaking, it does this only to the extent that it is to the advantage of the system to do it. It is the needs of the system that are paramount, not those of the human being. For example, the system provides people with food because the system couldn't function if everyone starved. It attends to people's psychological needs whenever it can conveniently do so. Because it couldn't function if too many people became depressed or rebellious. But the system, for good, solid, practical reasons, must exert constant pressure on people to mold their behavior to the need of the system. Too much waste accumulating? The government, the media, the educational system, environmentalists, everyone, inundates us with a massive propaganda about recycling. Need more technical personnel? A chorus of voices exhorts kids to study science. No one stops to ask whether it is inhuman to force adolescents to spend the bulk of their time studying subjects most of them hate. When skilled workers are put out of a job by technical advances and have to undergo undergo retraining, no one asks whether it's humiliating for them to be pushed around in this way. Uh, This reminds me of the Learn to Code uh, controversy from last year. One, I can't remember what the industry was. It, it was an older, in, more traditional industry like steel workers or miners that uh, were getting laid off. And some reporters, or maybe it was only one reporter, wrote an article called Learn to Code. Then like 10 years later, when journalists were getting laid off, uh, Learn to Code became a, a meme. And it was uh, it was a very sensitive topic on social media for whatever reason. It was... It was like flagged as hate speech and things. Okay. It is simply taken for granted that everyone must bow to technical necessity and for good reason. If human needs were put before technical necessity, there would be economic problems. Unemployment shortages or worse. The concept of mental health in our society is defined largely by the extent to which an individual behaves in accord with the needs of the system and does so without showing signs of stress. Uh, I think that's a really, really... Good point. The concept of mental health is defined largely by the extent to which an individual behaves in accord with the system and does so without showing signs of stress. Efforts to make room for a sense of purpose and for autonomy within the system are no better than a joke. For example, one company, instead of having each of its employees assemble only one section of a catalogue, had each assemble a whole catalogue and this was supposed to give them a sense of purpose and achievement. Some companies have tried to give their employees more autonomy in their work, but for practical reasons, this usually can be done only to a very limited extent. And in any case, employees are never given autonomy as to the ultimate goals of their autonomous efforts can never be directed towards goals that they select personally, but only towards their employer's goals, such as the survival and growth of the company. Any company would soon go out of business if it permitted its employees to act otherwise. Similarly, in any enterprise within a socialist system, workers must direct their efforts towards the goals of the enterprise. Otherwise, the enterprise will not serve its purpose as part of the system. Once again, for purely technical reasons, it is not possible for most individuals or small groups to have much autonomy in an industrial society. Even the small business owner commonly has only limited autonomy. Apart from the necessity of government regulation, he is restricted by the fact that he must fit into the economic system and conform to its requirements. For instance, when someone develops a new technology, the small business person often has to use that technology, whether he wants to or not, in order to remain competitive. The bad parts of technology cannot be separated from the good parts. One twenty-one. A further reason why industrial society cannot be reformed in favor of freedom is that modern technology is a unified system in which all parts are dependent on one another. You can't get rid of the bad parts of technology and retain only the good parts. Take modern medicine, for example. Progress in medical science depends on progress in chemistry, physics, biology, computer science, and other fields. Advanced medical treatments require expensive, high-tech equipment that can be made available only by a technologically progressive, economically rich society. Clearly, you can't have much progress in medicine without the whole technological system and everything that goes with it. I think I should just have a tiny little aside here because I forgot to mention. I, another point that I took from the TV series was that th- the targets he picked were completely at random. That was stated a few different times, but that's the only source I know that from. Uh, I, I, I've i never heard of anyone analyzing the, the reason he picked the targets he picked, but there could easily have been a very specific reason for some of the technologies that in the system that he targeted. 122. Even if medical progress could be maintained without the rest of the technological system, it would by itself bring certain evils. Suppose, for, examples, for example, that a cure for diabetes is discovered. People with a genetic tendency to diabetes will then be able to survive and reproduce as well as anyone else. Natural selection against genes for, the, for diabetes will cease, and such genes will spread throughout the population. This may be occurring to some extent already since diabetes, while not curable, can be controlled through the use of insulin. The same thing will happen with many other diseases, susceptibility to which is affected by the genetic degradation of the population. The only solution will be some sort of eugenics program or extensive genetic engineering of human beings so that man in the future will no longer be a creation of nature or of chance or of God, depending on your religious Or philosophical opinions but a manufactured product okay this is a major major uh, topic in Mark Passio's world I'm sure we'll come out come back to it he has coined the term epi eugenics meaning population control through controlling the culture essentially 123 if you think that big government interferes in your life too much now just wait till the government starts regulating the genetic constitution of your children. Such regulation will inevitably follow the introduction of genetic engineering of human beings because the consequences of unregulated genetic engineering would be disastrous. So one point reproductive rate of your nation is below 2.1, then your population is shrinking. And there are some countries in Asia, I think uh, Japan, I think it's it's down below 1. So it's down somewhere around 0.9. So there are a number of populations that are below 2.1. I think most of the western world is currently. So that's just an example of how um the culture is affecting the uh the genetic the genes being passed on. 124. The usual response to such concerns is to talk about medical ethics, quote unquote. But a code of ethics would not serve to protect freedom in the face of medical progress. It would only make matters worse. A code of ethics applicable to genetic and engineering would be, in effect, a means of regulating the genetic constitution of human beings. Somebody, probably the upper middle class mostly, would decide that such and such applications of genetic engineering were quote unquote ethical and others were not so that in effect they would be imposing their own values on the genetic constitution of the population at large. Even if a code of ethics were chosen on a completely democratic basis, the majority would be imposing their own values on any minorities who might have a different idea of what constituted an ethical use of genetic engineering. The only code of ethics that would be truly protect freedom would be one that prohibited any genetic engineering of human beings, and you can be sure that no such code will ever be applied in a technological society. No code reduced genetic engineering to a minor role could stand up for long because the temptation presented by the immense power of biotechnology would be irresistible, especially since to the majority of people many of its applications will seem obviously and unequivocally good. For example, eliminating physical and mental diseases, giving people the abilities they need to get along in today's world. Inevitably, genetic engineering will be used extensively, but only in ways consistent with the needs of the industrial technological system. Technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. This is really a little bit uh, synchronistic. Mark Passio recently had a podcast. I can't remember exactly. Let's say it was around 220. The evil is a stronger force than good. And I think that's sort of what's being said here. Technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. He wasn't saying that, that that's how it should be, but it's just the way it's playing out in society at the moment. 125, it's not possible to make a lasting compromise between technology and freedom because technology is by far the more powerful social force and continually encroaches on freedom through repeated compromises. Imagine the case of two neighbors, each of whom at the outset owns the same amount of land, but one is more powerful than the other. The powerful one demands a piece of the other's land. The weak one refuses. The powerful one says, okay, let's compromise. Give me half of what I ask. The weak one has little choice. Gives in. Sometime later, the powerful neighbor demands another piece. Again, there's a compromise and so forth. By forcing a long series of compromises on the weaker man, the powerful one eventually gets all of his land. So it goes on the conflict between technology and freedom. Let us explain why technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. A technological advance that appears not to threaten freedom often turns out to threaten it very seriously later. For example, consider motorized transport. A walking man formerly could go formerly could go where he pleased, go at his own pace without observing traffic regulations and was independent of technological support systems. When motor vehicles were introduced, they appeared to increase man's freedom. They took no freedom away from the walking man. No one had to have an automobile if he didn't want one. And anyone who did choose to buy an automobile could travel much faster and farther than a walking man. But the introduction of motorized transport soon changed society in such a way as to restrict greatly man's freedom of locomotion. When automobiles became numerous, it became necessary to regulate their use extensively. In a car, especially in a densely populated areas, one cannot just go where one likes at one's own pace. One's movement is governed by the flow of traffic and by various traffic laws. One is tied down by various obligations, license requirements, driver's tests, renewing registration, insurance, maintenance, requir- maintenance required for safety, monthly payments on purchase price. Moreover, the use of a motorized transport is no longer optional. Since the introduction of motorized transport, the arrangement of our cities has changed in such a way that that the majority of people no longer live, live within walking distance of their place of employment, shopping areas, and recreational opportunities, so they have to depend on the automobile for transport, or else they must use public transport, in which case they have even less control over their own movement than when driving a car. Even the walker's freedom is now greatly restricted. In the city, he continually has to stop to wait for traffic lights that are designed mainly to serve Auto traffic. In the country, motor traffic makes it dangerous and unpleasant to walk along the highway. Note, this is an important point that we have just illustrated with the case of motorized transport. When a new item of technology is introduced as an option that an individual can accept or not, as he chooses, it does not necessarily remain optional. In many cases, the new technology changes society in such a way that people eventually find themselves forced to use it. Uh, Facebook was probably a good example there while technological progress as a whole continually narrows our sphere of freedom each new technical advance considered by itself appears to be desirable <laughs> electricity indoor plumbing rapid long distance communications how could one argue against any of these things or any or against any of the innumerable technical advances that have made modern society it would have been absurd to resist the introduction of a telephone for example it offered many advantages and no disadvantages. Yet, as we explained in paragraphs 59 to 76, all these technical advances taken together have created a world in which the average man's fate is no longer in his own hands or in the hands of his neighbors and friends, but in those of politicians, corporate executives, and remote anonymous technicians and bureaucrats whom he, as an individual, has no power to influence. The same process will continue in the future. Take genetic engineering, for example. Few people will resist the introduction of a genetic technique that eliminates a hereditary disease. It does no apparent harm and prevents much suffering, yet a large number of genetic improvements taken together will make the human being into an engineered product rather than a creation of chance or of God or whatever depending on your religious beliefs. 129. Another reason why technology is such a powerful social force is that within the context of a given society, technological progress marches on in only one direction. It can never be reversed. Once a technical innovation has been introduced, people usually become dependent on it, so they can never again do without it unless it is replaced by some still more advanced innovation. Not only do people become dependent as individuals on a new item of technology, but even more, the system as a whole becomes dependent on it. Imagine what would happen to the system today if computers, for example, were eliminated. The other day at work, my PC died near the end of the day. I had some time to contemplate what people used to do without PCs at the office. It was, I mean, everything is done with your PC now. Thus, the system can move in only one direction, toward technologization. Technology repeatedly forces freedom to take a step back, but technology can never take a step back, short of the overthrow of the whole system. Technology advances with great rapidity and threatens freedom at many different points at the same time. Crowding, rules and regulations, increasing dependence of individuals on large organizations, propaganda and other psychological techniques... Genetic engineering, invasion of privacy through surveillance devices and computers, etc. To hold back any one of the threats to freedom would require a long and difficult social struggle. Those who want to protect freedom are overwhelmed by the sheer number of attacks, of new attacks, and the rapidity with which they develop. Hence, they, ap- they become apathetic and no longer resist. To fight each of the threats separately would be futile. Success can be hoped for only by fighting the technological system as a whole, but that is revolution, not reform. 131. Technicians. We use this term in its broad sense to describe all those who perform a specialized task that requires training. Technicians tend to be so involved in their work, which is their surrogate activity, that when a conflict arises between their technical work and freedom, they almost always decide in favor of their technical work. This is obvious in the case of scientists, but it also appears elsewhere. Educators, humanitarian groups, conservation organizations do not hesitate to use propaganda or other technological techniques to help them achieve their laudable ends. Corporations and government agencies, when they find it useful, do not hesitate to collect information about individuals without regard to their privacy. Law enforcement agencies are frequently inconvenienced by the constitutional rights Of suspects and often of completely innocent persons and they do whatever they can do legally or sometimes illegally to restrict or circumvent those rights. Most of these educators, government officials and law officers believe in freedom, privacy and constitutional rights but when these conflict with their work they usually feel that their work is more important. It is well known that people generally work better and more persistently when striving for a reward than when attempting to avoid a punishment or negative outcome. Scientists and other technicians are motivated mainly by the rewards they get through their work, but those who oppose technological invasions of freedom are working to avoid a negative outcome. Consequently, there are few who work persistently and well at this discouraging task. I'll just read that once again. But those who oppose technological invasions of freedom are working to avoid a negative outcome, consequently, there are few who work persistently and well at this discouraging task. If reformers ever achieved a single a, a single victory that seemed to set up a solid barrier against further erosion of freedom through technical progress, most would re- tend to relax and turn their attention to more agreeable pursuits. But the scientists would remain busy in their laboratories, and technology, as it progresses, would find ways, in spite of any barriers, to exert more and more control over individuals and make them always more dependent on the system. No social arrangements, whether laws, institutions, customs, or ethical codes, can provide permanent protection against technology. History shows that all social arrangements are transitory. They all change or break down eventually, but technological advances are permanent within the context of a given civilization. Suppose, for example, that it were possible to arrive at some social arrangements would prevent genetic engineering from being applied to human beings, or prevent it from being applied in such a way as to threaten freedom and dignity. Still, the technology would remain waiting. Sooner or later, the social arrangement would break down, probably sooner, given the pace of change in our society, then genetic engineering would begin to invade our sphere of freedom. And this invasion would be irreversible, short of a breakdown of technological civilization itself. Any illusions about achieving anything permanent through social arrangements should be dispelled by what is currently happening with environmental legislation. A few years ago, it seemed that there were secure legal barriers preventing at least some of the worst forms of environmental degradation. A change in political wind and those barriers begin to crumble. For all the foregoing reasons, technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. But this statement requires an important qualification. It appears that during the next several decades, the industrial technological system will be undergoing severe stresses due to economic environmental problems and especially due to problems of human behavior, alienation, rebellion, hostility, and a variety of social and psychological difficulties. We hope that the stresses through which the system is likely to pass will cause it to break down or at least will weaken it sufficiently so that a revolution against it becomes possible. If such a revolution occurs and is successful, then at that particular moment, the aspiration for freedom will will have proved more powerful than technology. In paragraph 125, we use an analogy of a weak neighbor who is left destitute by a strong neighbor, who takes all his land by forcing on him a series of compromises, but suppose now that the strong neighbor gets sick so that he's unable to defend himself. The weak neighbor can force the strong one to give him his land back or he can kill him. If he lets the strong man survive and only forces him to give the land back, he's a fool because when the strong man gets well, he will take all the land for himself. The only sensible alternative for the weaker man is to kill the strong one while he still has the chance. He's using, <laughs> he's using this as an analogy for killing the technological system. I'm sure that's clear, but i just just making sure everyone knows. In the same way, while the industrial system is sick, we must destroy it. If we compromise with it and let it recover from its sickness, it will eventually wipe out all of our freedom. I think I will read to the next end of this section, and then we'll finish in the, in the next episode. Simpler social problems have proved intractable. If anyone still imagines that it would be possible to reform the system in such a way as to protect freedom from technology, let him consider how clumsily and for the most part unsuccessfully our society has dealt with other social problems that are far more simple and straightforward. Among other things, the system has failed to stop environmental degradation, political corruption, and drug trafficking or domestic abuse. Take our environmental problems for example. Here, the conflict of values is straightforward. Economic expedience now versus saving saving some of our natural resources for our grandchildren. But on this subject, we get only a lot of blather and obfuscation from the people who have power and nothing like a clear, consistent line of action. And we keep on piling up environmental problems that our grandchildren will have to live with. Attempts to resolve the environmental issue consist of struggle, Struggles and compromises between different factions, some of which are ascendant ascendant at one moment and others at another moment. The line of struggle changes with the shifting currents of public opinion. This is not a rational process, nor is it one that is likely to lead to a timely and successful solution to the problem. Major social problems, if they get solved at all, are rarely or never solved through any rational comprehensive plan, they just work themselves out through a process in which various competing groups pursuing their own usually short-term self-interest arrive mainly by luck at some more or less stable modus vivendi. In fact, the principles we formulated in paragraph 100 to 106 make it seem doubtful that rational long-term social planning can ever be successful. Thus, it is clear that the human race has, at best, a very limited capacity for solving even relatively straightforward social problems. How, then, is it going to solve the far more difficult and subtle problem of reconciling freedom with technology? Technology presents a clear-cut material advantages, whereas freedom is an abstraction that means different things to different people, and its loss is easily obscured by propaganda and fancy talk. And note... This important difference, it is conceivable that our environmental problems, for example, may someday be settled through a rational, comprehensive plan. But if this happens, it will only be because it is in the long-term interest of the system to solve these problems, but it is not in the interest of the system to preserve freedom or small group autonomy. On the contrary, it is in the interest of the system to bring human behavior under control to the greatest possible extent. Thus, While practical considerations may eventually force the system to take a rational, prudent approach to environmental problems, equally practical considerations will force the system to regulate human behavior ever more closely, preferably by direct means that will disguise the encroachment on freedom. This isn't just our opinion. Eminent social scientists, e.g. James Q. Wilson, have stressed the importance of socializing people more effectively socializing, in quotes. Revolution is easier than reform, 140. We hope we have convinced the reader that the system cannot be reformed in such a way as to reconcile freedom with technology. The only way out is is to dispense with the industrial technological system altogether. This implies revolution, not necessarily an armed uprising, but certainly a radical and fundamental change in the nature of society. People tend to assume that because a revolution involves a much greater change than reform does, it is more difficult to bring about than reform is. Actually, under certain circumstances, revolution is much easier than reform. The reason is that, revolutionary, that a revolutionary movement can inspire an intensity of commitment that a reform movement cannot inspire. A reform movement merely offers to solve a particular social problem. A revolutionary movement offers to solve all problems at one stroke and create a whole new world it provides the kind of ideal for which people will take great risks and make great sacrifices for this reason it would be much easier to overthrow the whole technological system than put than to put effective permanent restraints on the development or application of any one segment of technology such as genetic engineering for example not many people will devote themselves with single-minded passion to imposing and maintaining restraints on genetic engineering. But under suitable conditions, large numbers of people may devote themselves passionately to revolution against the industrial technological system. As we noted in paragraph 132, reformers seeking to limit certain aspects of technology would be working to avoid a negative outcome, but revolutionaries working to gain a powerful reward Fulfillment in their revolutionary vision and therefore work harder and more persistently than reformers do. Reform is always restrained by the fear of painful consequences if changes go too far. But once a revolutionary fever has taken hold of society, people are willing to undergo limited hardships for the sake of their revolution. This was clearly shown in the French and Russian revolutions. It may be that in such cases only a minority of the population is really committed to the revolution. But this minority is sufficiently large and active so that it becomes the dominant force in society. We'll have more to say on this in 180 to 205. Control of human behavior, 143. Since the beginning of civilization, organized societies have had to put pressures on human beings of the sake of the functioning of the social organism. I think that should be for the sake of the function. The kinds of pressures vary greatly from one society to another. Some of the pressures are physical, poor diet, excessive labor. Let's start over. Since the beginning of civilization, organized societies have had to put pressures on human beings for the sake of the functioning of social organism. Okay. The kinds of pressures vary greatly from one society to another. Some pressures are physical, poor diet, excessive labor, environmental pollution. Some are psychological, noise, crowding, forcing human behavior into the mold that society requires. In the past, human nature has been approximately constant or at any rate has varied only within certain bounds. Consequently, societies have been able to push people only up to certain limits. When the limit of human endurance has been passed, things start to go wrong. Rebellion or crime or corruption or evasion of work or depression and other mental problems, or an elevated death rate, or a declining birth rate, or something else, so that either the society breaks down or its functioning becomes too inefficient. And it is, quickly or gradually, through conquest, attrition, or evolution, replaced by some more efficient form of society. Thus, human nature has, in the past, put certain limits on the development of societies. People could be pushed only so far and no farther. But today, this may be changing because modern technology is developing ways of modifying human beings. Imagine a society that subjects people to conditions that make them terribly unhappy, then gives them drugs to take away their unhappiness. Science fiction, question mark, is already happening to some extent in our society. It is well known that the rate of clinical depression has been greatly increasing in recent decades. We believe that this is due to the disruption of the power process as explained in 59 to 76, but even if we're wrong, the increasing rate of depression is certainly the result of some conditions that exist in today's society. Instead of removing the conditions that make people depressed, modern society gives them antidepressant drugs. In effect, antidepressants are means of modifying individual's internal state in such a way as to enable him to tolerate social conditions that he would otherwise find intolerable. Yes, we know that depression is often purely genetic origin. We are referring here to those cases in which environment plays the predominant role. 146. Drugs that affect the mind are only one example of the new methods of controlling human behavior that modern society is developing. Let us look at some of the other methods. To start with, there are the techniques of surveillance. Hidden video cameras are now used in most stores and in many other places. Computers are used to collect and process vast amounts of information about individuals. Information so obtained greatly increases the effectiveness of physical coercion, i.e. law enforcement. Then there are the methods of propaganda for which the mass communication media provide effective vehicles. Efficient techniques have been developed for winning elections, selling products, influencing the public opinion. The entertainment industry serves an important psychological tool for the system, possibly even when it is dishing out large amounts of sex and violence. Entertainment provides modern man with an essential means of escape. While absorbed in television, videos, etc., he can forget stress, anxiety, frustration, dissatisfaction. Many primitive peoples, when they don't have work to do, are quite content content to sit for hours at a time doing nothing at all because they're at peace with themselves and the world. But most modern people must be constantly occupied or entertained, otherwise they get quote-unquote bored. They get fidgety, uneasy, irritable. These major blockbuster franchises, everybody's seeing the same movies because there's two or three major franchises that come, come out with new versions every year, year and a half, and everyone goes and sees them. So, I mean, what an unbelievable influence on the culture. Anyway, 148, other techniques strike deeper than the foregoing. Education is no longer a simple affair of paddling a kid's behind when he doesn't know his lessons and patting him on the head when he does, is becoming a scientific technique for controlling the child's development. Sylvain Learning Centers, for example, have had great success in motivating children to study, and psychologic techniques are also being used with more or less success in many conventional schools. Parenting techniques that are taught to parents are designed to make children accept fundamental values of the system and behave in ways the system finds desirable. Mental health programs, intervention techniques, psychotherapy, and so forth are ostensibly designed to benefit individuals. But in practice, they usually serve as methods for inducing individuals to think and behave as the system requires. There is no contradiction here. An individual whose attitudes or behavior bring him into conflict with a system is up against a force that is too powerful for him to conquer or escape from. Hence, he's likely to suffer from stress, frustration, and defeat. His path will be much easier if he thinks and behaves as the system requires. In that sense, the system is acting for the benefit of the individual when it brainwashes him into conformity. Child abuse, in its gross and obvious forms, is disapproved of in most, if not all, cultures. Tormenting a child for a trivial reason or no reason at all is something that appalls almost everyone. But many psychologists interpret the concept of abuse much more broadly. Is spanking, when used as part of a rational and consistent system of discipline, a form of of abuse? The question will ultimately be decided by whether or not the spanking tends to produce behavior that makes a person fit in well with the existing system of society. In practice, the word abuse tends to be interpreted to include any method of child-rearing that produces behavior inconvenient for the system. Thus, When they go beyond the prevention of obvious senseless cruelty, programs for preventing child abuse are directed towards the control of human behavior on behalf of the system. Presumably, research will continue to increase the effectiveness of psychological techniques for controlling human behavior. But we think it's unlikely that psychological techniques alone will be sufficient to adjust human beings to the kind of society that technology is creating biological methods probably will have to be used. We have already mentioned the use of drugs in this connection. Neurology may provide other avenues for modifying the human mind. Genetic engineering of human beings is already beginning to occur in the form of quote unquote gene therapy. And there's no reason to assume that such methods will not eventually be used to modify those aspects of the body that affect mental functioning. There's a family of pharmaceuticals that is designed to just make your mind function more uh, in a concentrated fashion for long periods of time, so uh, university students can take these these pills. They're fairly natural, actually. They're not uh, pharmaceuticals. They're originally designed as an antidote to ADD to help kids focus. Then uh, fighter pilots discovered them for long missions. Then college students discovered them. They could. Just concentrate on studies for for hours at a time um, when they're cramming. It's an N, I'll remember. As we mentioned in paragraph 134, industrial society seems likely to be entertaining a period of severe stress due in part to problems of human behavior and in part to economic and environmental problems. And a considerable portion of the system's economic and environmental problems result from the way human beings behave. Alienation, low self-esteem, esteem, esteem, depression, hostility, rebellion, children who won't study, youth gangs, illegal drug use, rape, child abuse, other crimes, unsafe sex, teen pregnancy, population growth, political corruption, race, hatred, ethnic rivalry, bitter ideological conflict, for example, pro-choice versus pro-life, political extremism, terrorism, sabotage, anti-government groups, hate groups, all these threaten the very survival of the system the system will therefore be forced to use every practical means of controlling human behavior. The social disruption that we see today is certainly not the result of mere chance. It can only be a result of the conditions of life that the system imposes on people. We have argued that the most important of these conditions is disruption of the power process. If the systems succeed in imposing sufficient control over human behavior to assure its own survival, a new watershed in human history will have been passed. If the system succeeds in imposing sufficient control over human behavior to assure its own survival, a new watershed in human history will have been passed. Whereas formerly the limits of human endurance have imposed limits on the development of societies, as we explain in paragraphs 143 and 144, industrial technological society will be able to pass those limits by modifying human beings, whether by... Psychological methods or biological methods are both. In the future, social systems will not be adjusted to suit the needs of human beings. Instead, human beings will be adjusted to suit the needs of the system. 152. Generally speaking, technological control over human behavior will probably not be introduced with a totalitarian attention or even through a conscious desire to restrict human freedom. Each new step in the assertion of control over human mind over the human mind will be taken as a rational response to a problem that faces society such as curing alcoholism, reducing the crime rate, or inducing young people to study science and engineering. In many cases, there will be a humanitarian justification. For example, when a psychiatrist prescribes an antidepressant for a depressed patient, he is clearly doing that individual a favor. It would be inhumane to withhold the drug from someone who needs it. When parents send their children to Sylvain, Sylvain learning centers to have them manipulated into becoming enthusiastic about their studies, they do so. They do so from a concern for their children's welfare. It may be that some of these parents wish that one didn't have to to have specialized training to get a job, and that their kid didn't have to be brainwashed into becoming a computer nerd. But what can they do? They can't change society and their child may be unemployable if he doesn't have certain skills. So, they send him to Sylvain. Thus, control over human behavior will be introduced not by a calculated decision of the authorities, but through a process of social evolution, rapid evolution, however. The process will be impossible to resist because each advance, considered by itself, will appear to be beneficial, or at least the evil involved in making the advance will seem to be less than that which would result from not making it. See paragraph 127. Propaganda, for example, is used for many good purposes, such as discouraging child abuse or race hatred. Sex education is obviously useful, yet the effect of sex education, to the extent that it is successful, is to take the shaping of sexual attitudes away from the family and put it into the hands of the state as represented by the public school system. 154. Suppose a biological trait is discovered It increases the likelihood that a child will grow up to be a criminal, and suppose some sort of gene gene therapy can remove this trait. Of course, most parents whose children possess that trait will have them undergo the therapy. It would be inhumane to do otherwise, since the child would probably have a miserable life if he grew up to be a criminal. But many or most primitive societies have a low crime rate in comparison with that of our society, even though they have neither high-tech methods of child-rearing nor harsh systems of punishment. Since there is no reason to suppose that more modern men than primitive men have innate predatory tendencies, the high crime rate of our society must be due to the pressures that modern conditions put on people, to which many cannot or will not adjust. Thus, a treatment designed to remove potential criminal tendencies is at least, in part, a way of re-engineering people so that they suit the requirements of the system. Our society tends to regard as a sickness any mode of thought or behavior that is inconvenient for the system. And this is plausible because when an individual doesn't fit into the system, it causes pain to the individual as well as problems for the system. Thus, the manipulation of an individual... To adjust him to the system is seen as a cure for a sickness and therefore as a good. Michael Sarion ha- has three words he uses for this. Unsane. Unsane is everyone that's operating within the system, functioning well within the system. So they're in the matrix. Sane are the people that, that uh, break away, individualize, and see the flaws of the system in the matrix and see their way out. And then it, insane are people beyond that beyond just seeing through the matrix. In paragraph 127, we pointed out that if the use of a new item of technology is initially optional, it does not remain optional, because the new technology tends to change society in such a way that it becomes difficult or impossible for the individual to function without using that technology. This applies also to the technology of human behavior. In a world in which most children are put through a program to make them enthusiastic about studying, a parent will almost be forced to put his kid through such a program, because if he does not, the kid will grow up to be, comparatively speaking, an ignoramus and therefore unemployable. Or suppose a biological treatment is discovered that, without undesirable side effects, will greatly reduce the psychological stress from which so many people suffer in our society. If large numbers of people choose to undergo the treatment, then the general level of stress in society will be reduced, so that it will be possible for the system to increase the stress-producing pressures. In fact, something like this seems to have happened already, with one of our society's most important psychological tools for enabling, enabling people to reduce, or at least temporarily escape from, stress, namely mass entertainment. Our use of mass entertainment is optional, No law requires us to watch television, listen to the radio, read magazines. Yet, mass entertainment is a means of escape and stress reduction on which most of us have become dependent. Everyone complains about the trashiness of television, but almost everyone watches it. A few have kicked the TV habit, but it would be a rare person who could get along today without using any form of mass entertainment. Yet, until quite recently in human history, most people got along very nicely with no other entertainment than that which each local community created for itself. Without the entertainment industry, the system probably would not have been able to get away with putting as much stress-producing pressure on us as it does. Assuming that industrial society survives, it is likely that technology will eventually acquire something approaching complete control over human behavior. It has been established beyond any rational doubt that human thought and behavior have a largely biological basis. As experimenters have demonstrated, feelings such as hunger, pleasure, anger, and fear can be turned on and off by electrical stimulation of appropriate parts of the brain. Memories can be destroyed by damaging parts of the brain, or they can be brought to the surface by electrical stimulation. Hallucinations can be induced or moods changed by drugs. There may or may not be an immaterial human soul But if there is one, it clearly is less powerful than the biological mechanisms of human behavior. For if that were not the case, then researchers would not be able so easily to manipulate human feelings and behavior with drugs and electrical currents. It presumably would be impractical for all people to have electrodes inserted into their heads so that they could be controlled by the authorities. But the fact that human thoughts and feelings are so open to biological intervention shows that the problem of controlling human behavior is mainly a technical problem, a problem of neurons, hormones, complex molecules, the kind of problem that is accessible to scientific attack. Given the outstanding record of our society in solving technical problems, it is overwhelmingly probable that great advances will be made in the control of human behavior. Will public resistance prevent the introduction of technological control of human behavior? It certainly would if an attempt were made to introduce such control all at once. But since technological control will be introduced through a long sequence of small advances, there will be no rational and effective public resistance. To those that think this all sounds like science fiction, we point out that yesterday's science fiction is today's fact. The Industrial Revolution has radically altered man's environment and way of life, and it is only to be expected that as technology is increasingly applied to the human body and mind, Man himself will be altered as radically as his environment and way of life have been. Okay, that's the end of paragraph 160. We'll hold there and move on to the questions and trivia from last episode, and we'll pick up at 161 and finish in episode 3. Well, I can't uh, say enough how much I'm getting out of re-reviewing this and researching these Uh, sections in a little more detail for each episode but uh, a couple things I'd like to just point out before we move to the trivia section. Uh, One is that um, the family of pharmaceuticals I was trying to think of that uh, started as a cure for ADD and then moved into uh, military missions, use for military missions and then students using it for uh, cramming for exams is called nootropics. There are some that are over-the-counter and some that are, that are pharmaceuticals. The other point I wanted to make was that in the YouTube video, the German YouTube video that I'll share again on this post, they do a great job talking to a couple of scientists. Uh, one of the bomb victims, actually, they did a great job. He had a uh, he had a book and a simulation of sorts, uh, software simulation called Mirror World, I believe it was. And his idea was to set up a civilization in software that ran itself. And that once you, once you kicked it off, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, control it. And he was one of the bomb victims. So um, they just did a really good job of kind of scanning many aspects of this case um, and two of the scientists they interview, well, the German, I think he was a physicist, really made a good point at the end around the limits of science, that we we, f- we fool ourselves into a false notion of confidence around our scientific method and our scientists and their newest latest findings. But he really made a, a great point that essentially a lot of the new quote-unquote innovations are terms to explain scientific dynamics that we can't explain. So he used the example of particles. Particles got invented to explain dynamics that we can't explain. So every time you run into something you can't explain, you explain it with the particle theory. Um, He was really quite engaging and entertaining. But the other one was actually the Unabomber himself who was as I mentioned in the last episode, an accomplished mathematician, he, uh, he didn't just allude. He explicitly said that advanced abstract mathematics becomes a fraud at its limits. I mean, he said something along those lines. And he said, you really have to take it to its limits before you see the uh, cloak and dagger games that are going on with advanced abstract mathematics. So I thought that was fascinating. He didn't, he didn't say any specifics. But I mean, this is a guy that knows what he's talking about on that particular topic. The idea that we do kid ourselves about our limits of uh, our scientific knowledge and understanding. The last one is, um, I think this is one of the strongest pointers that there's much more going on with this story than than the press is letting on. For one thing, they admit in they actually admit in the case and in the TV series. And it goes into more detail in that documentary, but um, he was experimented, psychological experiments at Harvard by a World War II experienced psychological experimenter. So, I mean, just the links and ties with even T- Timothy Leary was connected in some way, and then this this doctor who had World War II experience, and then it really seems like they're half winking, telling you that this was a setup. I mean a time bomb designed and and released by the authorities but the other one I think is is this probably the strongest pointer that there's more going on is the actual name so Unabomber they named him Unabomber before they knew if he was one or many and he was referring to himself in his writings as a plural as a I think it was Freedom Committee and he still to this day refers to that group as a as a, as a group. Um, and yet they named him Unabomber before, and that stuck, and they kept it. They claimed it was an acronym or an abbreviation for University and Airline Bomber, but I mean, obviously, Unabomber. What they were really trying to tell the world, and to this day, trying to tell the world, is that he's a lone, a lone gunman. And so, kind of makes you think if they go to that much trouble, to name him the lone gunman, that there's more going on. Okay, that's it for this uh, talk on this topic on this episode. Let's move on into the questions and answers and um, wrap it up and then wrap the whole the whole story up next week. So the questions for from last episode are as follows. Number one, what are the four main tenets of modern Satanism? Number two, what, if any, relationship is there between morality and freedom? Number three, what are the key distinctions or litmus tests between a culture, a religion, and a cult? How do you know when your social circle or community is one of these? Number four, what are the eight pillars of Buddhism, the Eightfold Path? And number five, what are the 14 signposts to slavery as shared audiobook, none dare call it, Conspiracy? And the authors are listed here in the, in the show notes. The authors of the signposts. So, number one, modern Satanism. What are the main four main tenets of modern Satanism? Here's the answer. Number one, egotism. Service to, service to self is life's highest goal. Now, th- this is such an important point, these four. There's more uh, in-depth information here in the, in the notes, so, but I'll just focus on answering the questions. Um, service to self. So people think this is a Hollywood creation, but they think they think of um, conjuring entities and dark practices and rituals and all those things. There are that does exist, but the actual belief system is listed here: egotism, surf, service to self is life's highest goal. Number one, number two, moral relativism: right and wrong are whatever human be- beings say they are. Number three, social Darwinism. The most dominant and cruel humans should become the masters and rule humanity. Number four, eugenics, epiugenics. The masters should determine who is allowed to live and who must die. If you really think about it, this is the value system the entire society is shifting to. I was going to say Western society, but it's not just Western society. It's definitely second world As well, and so there are Satanists who know what the practices are and what the faith is, quote unquote. But there's a large majority of the population who are basically mini-me Satanists. They have the value system in a in a lower level, and that's how they're living their life on a daily basis. um, And they don't even know that they are they are little mini-me Satanists. Okay, next question is. The relationship uh, between freedom and morality. Freedom and morality are directly proportional. True freedom can never exist in a society that embraces moral relativism. The idea, moral relativism is the idea that there is no objective difference between right and wrong, uh, and human beings can can arbitrarily create or decide what right and wrong are, are for themselves. So as morality increases, freedom increases. As morality declines, freedom declines and you've got an entire population of people that couldn't even define right and wrong. They don't even know what morality is anymore. That's how lost we are. Another way of stating this law would be to say that the presence of truth and morality in the lives of people of any given society is inversely proportional to the presence of tyranny and slavery in that society. So if you want to head straight towards slavery, you subscribe to a belief system called moral relativism. If you want to head straight towards peaceful freedom, you subscribe to natural law and live by the moral belief system embedded in natural law. There's a little bit more here. There's a formula that uh, really works for me. It's the, it's the aggregate The sum of freedom is directly proportional to the sum of morality in the population. Litmus tests for cult community. Several years ago, the founder of International House of Prayer, Mike Bickle, created a list of seven ways to recognize the difference between a religious community and a cult. Written down, the signs seem clear. I I put an asterisk next to my favorites, my personal favorites. Opposing critical thinking cult knowledge base is final as is number two isolating members and penalizing them for leaving which is known as apostasy number three emphasizing special doctrines outside scripture number four seeking inappropriate loyalty to their leaders unquestioning number five dishonoring the family unit unless the family is in the cult number six Crossing biblical boundaries of behavior versus sexual purity and personal ownership. Imagine when we think of cult, we think of charismatic leader and we think of kind of uh, controlled sexual behaviors controlled by the leader, which are, which for most people is a, is a sure sign you're you're going into a dark place. And number seven, separation from the church. This is in the religious context. Context. So the th- principles of Of establishing a cult, isolation, indoctrination, and conformity. Next is the, okay, religion. The ostensible purpose of religion, connect people with God and spirituality, show people a better way of living through a moral way of life. Now, the Latin definition or uh, origins of the word is, I just think of relegate, to tie back, to hold back, to thwart from forward progress, to bind. A false religion is a system of control based on unchallenged dogmatic belief which holds back the progress of consciousness. And then there's some modern religions listed, like scientism and atheism. And then there's a a few more comments about cults and some of their techniques. Uh, One of them is trauma. One of the uh, principles includes trauma. So that just makes... And I, I mean... This is my comment on the on the next Netflix episodes when they're showing you some graphic violence. I'm always paying attention to what's coming next. I'm trying to anyway. Let's put it that way. Eightfold path of Buddhism. Number one, right understanding. Number two, right intention. Number three, right speech. Number four, right action. Number five, right livelihood. Number six, right effort. Number seven, right mindfulness. Number eight, right concentration. Uh, they're listed there in a few different formats, but that's that's essentially the list. And finally, the signpost to slavery. This was shared in a wonderful little book that was published in 1972, called "None Dare Call It Conspiracy." It was authored by Gary Allen with Larry Abraham, and it was considered controversial to have been a blueprint for the future of America. That America is perhaps where we are all living today. If you doubt the possibility of a conspiracy to bring America to its knees and perhaps install a totalitarian dictatorship through, through the conversion of our republic into a democracy, you need only look at the changes in our laws. Gary Allen provides his readers with 14 signposts on the road to totalitarianism. They were compiled by Dr. Warren Carroll and Mike Djorkovich a refugee from Yugoslavian communism. communism. The list is in no particular order. However, nothing on the list existed in American law at the time the list was compiled. Read it now. Experience it for yourself. Any one of the listed items would be a clear warning that the totalitarian state is very near, and a significant number of perhaps five or more could possibly suggest that the freedom we have once enjoyed and the preservation of our great republic has been lost. Fourteen signposts to slavery. One, restrictions on taking money out of the country and on the establishment or retention of a foreign bank account by an American citizen. Number two, abolition of private ownership of handguns. Number three, detention of individuals without judicial process. Read Julian Assange. Number four, requirements that private financial transactions be keyed to Social Security numbers or other government tax ID numbers So that government records of these transactions can be fed into a computer. Number five, use of compulsory education laws to forbid attendance at presently existing private schools. Number six, compulsory non military service. Number seven, compulsory psychological treatment for non government workers or public school children. Number eight, an official declaration that anti communist patriot organizations are subversive and subsequent legal action taken to suppress them. Number nine, laws limiting the number of people allowed to meet in a private home. Number ten, any significant change in passport regulations to make passports more difficult to obtain. Number eleven, wage and price controls, especially in a non-wartime situation. Number twelve, any kind of compulsory registration with the government of where individuals work. Number 13, any attempt to restrict freedom of movement within the United States. Number 14, any attempt to make a new major law by executive decree, that is actually put into effect, not merely authorized as by existing executive orders. Now, if that isn't a list of everything that's going on right now, I don't know what to tell you. So there was a good little commentary I'd like to Quickly go through this as to where it was as of January 1972. President Nixon invoked numbers 1, 11, and 14 as of January 1st, 1972. Banks must report to the government any deposit or withdrawal over $5,000. That number has since been reduced to $3,000. Any purchase over $10,000 made in cash must also be reported to the federal government. Clinton has done the same via executive orders. Courts have, in some instances, ordered individuals without bank accounts to open one under threat of incarceration through charges of civil contempt. This government is presently attempting to end private handgun ownership in America through federal legislation, that is, signpost number two. Recent destruction of habeas, habeas corpus has made signpost number three a reality. Federal banking laws have made signpost number four the law of the land. Number three is detention of individuals without judicial process. Number four is requirements of private financial transactions be keyed to a, go- to a federal ID number. President Clinton's America in Service, quote-unquote, legislation has made signpost number six, an expected part of American behavior. Federal civil rights legislation in regard to helping young children deal with alternative lifestyles of adults Susie's two mummies and daddies, has made signpost number seven part of the new American landscape. Increased fees and much extended waiting times are now required to obtain a passport, which is signpost number 10. The EPA's trip reduction legislation, which limits individuals' rights to travel freely on the highway, is a perfect example of signpost number 13. Roadblocks or checkpoints set up by either local or state police under the guise of searching for drugs or drunk drivers, while appearing to be in the service of society, are in truth an invasion of our freedom to travel. Well, we have already seen 1, 2, 3, 4, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Signpost 8 is up for grabs. 8 is official declaration that patriot organizations are subversive. And 5, 6, 7, and 9 may take a little more time. The truth speaks for itself. America may be lost. We may now be living under totalitarian rule. Some of us will recognize the truth. Some of us will continue to be in denial of the truth. Too few of us will fight back to regain the freedoms we've lost. The only thing you can be sure of is that this government will continue in its relentless march over whatever may be left of this once great republic until we are all slaves in the land our fathers fought to make free. Winston Churchill, speaking to the English people as they were about to become involved in World War II, proclaimed, if you will not fight for right when you can easily win without bloodshed, if you will not fight when your victory will be sure and not too costly, you may come to the moment where you will have to fight with all the odds against you and only a precarious chance of survival. Because the American people have ignored warning after warning, we have finally come to the place in time where we are beginning to ask where our freedoms have gone unless we begin to take action now against unconstitutional acts on the part of our elected public servants, we will face a future choice, also described by Mr. Churchill. He said, there may be even a worse fate. You may have to fight when there's no hope of victory, because it is better to perish than to live as slaves. To study the whys and the wherefores of our present condition, I suggest Enemy, the State. Our Enemy, the State by Albert J. Nock, 1935. His classic and brilliant critique, distinguishing government from the state. In the same vein, tracing the path of state from tyranny to freedom and back again to tyranny, I suggest The Law by Frederick Bestiat, 1850, another much-ignored much classic expose of all socialist tendencies in the functioning of government. All right, let's do the questions for next episode. Questions for next episode. Why does it make complete sense that Satanists, now that you know what their tenets are, their four tenets that Satanists worship death and suffering? Two, how can you have a true personal relationship, friend or family member, or love interest that isn't rooted in service to truth as its highest value? Number three, in the mystery traditions, what word is referred to as the lost word? Number four, what's the definition of natural law or God's law? Number five, what's the definition of a natural-born human right? or by corollary a wrong. And finally, number six, what's agape? What's the meaning of the word agape, and where has this word gone? Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed. We will wrap the uh, Unabomber story next episode. Please browse on over and explore the different supporting links that were mentioned in the show at synthesismeaning.me, podcast section episode two. There's also a recommended vendor product I've been really happy with, Bombay Shirt Company, online custom shirts. So it's an interesting combination. Uh, so enjoy all that, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks a lot.